Thresholds Radio with your host, John Stevenson. Recording a UFO accident. And there in the darkness, on the ground, knocking on the walls, something crawling towards you. It's obvious to kids. Why? Oh my god, are you seeing this? To a formation forming. Greetings and welcome to the show. I'm Steve Kenny here on Thresholds Radio. Tonight's show features our nightmare special, sure to give you the heebie-jeebies, with three choice interviews. Stay plugged, we'll be right back after this. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. Welcome back. We're rolling right now through our nightmare special. Our listeners don't know this, but you and I have been talking off air for about an hour and a half already. So I know all about you, but why didn't you tell all them about yourself and uh, your research? Okay, John. I'm the. Uh, my name is Butch Witkowski. I'm the director of U4COP, the UFO Research Center of Pennsylvania, uh, located in eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, we are an investigative research group that investigates UFOs, cryptozoology, paranormal, and abduction. Uh, we've been in existence now for, this is our fourth year. Uh, we have a website at uh, www.paufosearch.com, one word. And um, I guess tonight we're going to talk a little bit about the abduction phenomenon. Yeah, which is amazing. You and I talked about this once before, but unfortunately our, our tape got destroyed. It technical thing, so we never got to air it. Well, uh, you know, a lot of people get a little confused with abduction. When you talk about abduction, you're thinking somebody just got kidnapped. And the term alien abduction or the alien abduction phenomenon is really described as subjectively real memories of being taken secretly or against one's will by apparently non-human entities and subjected to complex complex and psychological procedures. And worse. Uh, Yes. Uh, When I first... uh, started, it was quite accidentally that I got involved in this, where um, I was asked to speak at a conference on abduction, and although I knew about it, I really didn't uh, know a whole lot about it, uh, to be honest, so I, you know, set about doing some studies, because I had two months to get ready, and uh, in the midst of the uh, research, it just kind of hit me, like, well, so how many people could be missing, and um, I tried to locate that. Unfortunately, there is no groups or databases for that type of abduction scenario. So I went on NCIC, which is the National Crime Information Center, and um, I saw that in 2008, um, 778,000 missing persons reports were filed. That's amazing. And approximately 95% were found. 75% of those are runaways under the age of 18. You know, like, I can't have dad's car, so I'm going to run away. Uh, another 20% came out to be spousal abuse, murders, elderly walkaways, ransom demands, etc. But what struck me was that 5% are never found, and that number came out to be 38,908. So I went back a little further, and since 1991, the missing persons reports totaled 13,861,000. Again, using that same math, uh, 5%, uh, 
693,000 are never found, no traces ever located. And uh, so in a 17-year period, that's 40,795 people a year that are missing. Completely Never. unaccounted for, too. Are they just gone? Totally right? unaccounted for. No bodies found, nothing. I mean, they're just gone. And that's men, women, and children. Now, with abduction, alien abduction, a lot of the mental health and scientists explain it as, you know, deception, proneness to fantasy, false memory syndrome, personality disorders, sleep phenomenon, environmental factors. But, you know, those are pretty high numbers. And then, you know, the, and the abduction scenario, uh, and no matter where you hear it or where you read it, it's always the same. There's a capture, there's an examination, there's a conference with the uh, takers, there's a tour of the craft, there's loss of time, then there's the return. Some people suffer from uh, theophany, which is, you know, they have a oneness with God or the universe or the world. Exactly. And then there's the aftermath that they put up with for the rest of their lives. And uh, again, uh, no matter which report you're reading, going way back or something that's just recent, you know, the areas of alien interest in the human is the same also. They're interested in the cranium, the nervous system functions, skin samples, the reproductive systems, both male and female, cardiovascular systems, respiratory systems, the lymphatic system, and the abdominal lower region only. So, you know, they're all the same. They don't change. They don't change. And you've had a lot of really notable cases since 1957. Um, the Antonio Boas case in Brazil, uh, the Betty and Barney Hill case in 61, the Shermer case in uh, Allagash in 67, Pascagoula case in 73, Travis Waltman in 75, uh, uh, Robert Taylor in 79, Whitey uh, Streibner in the 70s and 80s. So it's, it's a phenomenon that is being looked at more now than ever, I believe. Well, the details uh, are usually pretty much the same, too, out of all these cases, no matter who or where they are, they usually pretty much come out the same. That's correct. I mean, they just, no matter where. Uh, the only thing is, with, like I said, with the abduction, there's no databases, and we can only go on stuff that's really from this country. Groups overseas are sparse. Uh, I deal with a few, and um, they every now and then come up with a case, but... Um, you know, the, the person's either found or, or you know, they, there was an accident or something like that. But in most cases, you know, there's no way in knowing how many people are missing around the world because there are no databases. And I'm sure in the Middle East where, you know, people are killed daily by the hundreds and, and the African countries, who knows how many people are missing? But we can only really find anything database-wise uh, from the, uh, you know, the NCIC report. And the NCIC report is done by every police department in the country every year. It is uh, set forth uh, paperwork uh, where you would put down anything from what it is you're reporting the crimes in your, in your area uh, to the FBI for their reports. And that's, you know, that's how they uh, publish in the newspaper that, you know, murders are up, rapes are down, burglaries up, right. uh, that kind of stuff. But you never and hear this. I mean, when's the last time you heard on the news that, you know, X amount of people are missing? <laughs> that's never brought up, ever. And for good reason, I'm sure, because how can anybody explain that? So once I got involved in that, then I really started looking at the abduction phenomenon, uh, uh, not only with the human element, but with cattle. In the middle 50s, you know, the stories about finding corpses of strangely mutilated cattle began to, began to surface in the rural southwestern United States, in the four corner states, uh, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and, and, and Arizona. And um, first, the authorities blamed the pharmaceutical companies who were alleged to be using the excised organs for research, and then the cults using the organs in rituals. And 
the strange thing about that was, which is almost the same as the abduction scene, is there's no physical traces, there's no footprints, there's no crushed grass, no tire prints, no imprints in the snow, no indications of man nor predator near the carcasses. And um, the wounds on the uh, carcasses are one to one and a half inch holes through which internal organs are sucked out. The wounds are cauterized by extreme heat. They're extremely precision cut and usually missing from the, all the carcasses, so the eyes, tongues, lip, jaw, sexual organs, lower intestines, and udders. And uh, the cattle mutilations are not predator. I mean, if you look at a predator, uh, an animal killed by a predator... Well, they say, rip things apart. Yeah, uh, a pack of wolves descends on a, on a calf or, or, or a slow-moving cow. I mean, they just shred it. I mean, they take the... You know, they just rip things off. There's, there's nothing precision about anything. There are no holes. I mean, they just gut the animal. Yeah, very few animals walk around with laser cutting tools. Right. Well, and then uh, I, uh, as I got into it a little bit, then I found that sheep mutilations in the United Kingdom, in, in, in England, and now basically the same exact thing that are done to the cattle here are done to sheep out there. Now, horses have been done here also. But, you know, you look at these pictures of the sheep, and, you know, they got the same holes, the same markings, the same organs are missing. And, um, you know, the reports continue. I mean, in, uh, through 2011, we've had reports in Colorado, New Mexico, Texas, Montana, California, Oklahoma, Arizona, England, South America. So they continue. And then, you know, that kind of led me into human mutilation, which was really hard to believe. And I thought, well, it's just, a, you know, some kind of Internet prank or something like that. And... Um, so I started looking at that, and it really starts in the early 60s where you get stories coming to the forefront of human corpses being found with the same types of wounds they find on cattle. And that was immediately dismissed, dismissed as being in bad taste by ufologists. Absolutely. Which is kind of irrelevant. If, if something's happening, it's happening. Yeah, and it was just not to be talked about. And um, I've been told to stop, and of course I didn't stop, but uh, some of the cases to date were, you know, that we found only one uh, that we can, or actually two, that we can say we have enough evidence to say that that case actually took place. But there was one of a Sergeant J.P. Lovett in the U.S. Air Force in 56 who went downrange uh, in White Sands, uh, New Mexico, with a uh, commanding officer to pick up some material left from a recent shot of a, of a missile. The colonel that's with him hears him screaming and gets over a sand dune just in time to see him with something lashed around his leg being pulled up into some sort of a craft. And then a few days later, they find his body not far from where he was taken, uh, laying there, uh, and he's been pretty much done in just like a cabin mutilation. There was a case in Bliss, Idaho, uh, cases in New Zealand, and then there's a couple cases which we just really can't get a lot of information on. Uh, there was a special ops uh, military firefight during Vietnam where a group of um, special operations soldiers come across some aliens loading body parts into cases, plastic cases. Wow. Uh, the firefight starts, and uh, hooray for our side, we win pretty much all the information that comes out. And then there's a B-52 crash in Vietnam uh, where the uh, plane looks like it has been set down in the jungle, not a crash. And when uh, the, the uh, operations team, along with a Navy medic who presents the story and photographer, gets there, uh, they find the guys still strapped in their seats, and they're pretty much butchered the same way. The group that goes out there uh, orders them to burn the plane, destroy it. We cannot find any evidence of a B-52 crash in Vietnam uh, to date. 
And a plane like that coming down in the woods is going to make huge amount of damage. I mean, the cases just came to light a couple of years ago, and, you know, we're still looking for information, but the information is slim to none. But the two cases that uh, really stand out, especially the biggest one, is uh, the Guadaparanga Dam case in Brazil in 1988. Uh, the Guadaparanga Dam is located in some, right outside of Sao Paulo, Brazil, and um, a couple of guys are out fishing on the lake, and they see what looks to be a body on one of the little islands and it's a man-made lake, so uh, they go out and uh, instead of going to check the body, they go get the police, and the police come out and they bring forensic people with them. So um, you know, they they look at the body and death due to massive trauma is what the autopsy report says, which we have a copy of. Uh, there's no signs of rigor mortis or liver mortis. Time of death was placed at 40 to 72 hours before discovery. There's no bloating or noticeable amount of blood at the scene, which is remarkable on no bloating because the temperature in that part of the country, uh, that part of the world, at that time of the year, it would have been in the high 90s with very high humidity. Well, then you would have ballooned in no time. Anything dies, it's going to happen like that. Oh, absolutely. Now, the decedent, the gentleman, is found with a, uh, the following were surgically removed, his eyes, left ear, inner ear, lower jaw, inner throat, and tongue. There are one inch to one and a half inch holes in the following areas where muscle, tissue, and glands are removed. The shoulder, chest, navel, and thigh. Testicles were removed. Prostrate gland was removed via the urethral tube. Uh, the intestines were removed via a hole in the navel. The anus was cored out to the colon. The body presented no signs of bloating, which is remarkable. And there was no body odor whatsoever. Uh. The... Uh, the autopsy report, uh, when it was translated in the autopsy report seven or eight times, I believe it was seven, uh, there's the term vital reaction. And the definition of vital reaction, the actual legal definition of vital reaction, indicates a response of living body tissues to injury. By definition, it can only occur during life and is therefore an index of anti-mortem injury. This is of considerable importance in forensic medicine in A, attempting to establish that an injury was inflicted before death, and B, possibility of estimating the time of infliction before death. If you would take a dead body and stab it with a knife, all you're going to get is a hole, period. There's not going to be any discoloration, any marking, anything like that. Uh, if you stab a living individual with that knife, He's pulling, he's moving, he's tearing, he's trying to get away. So he's causing all kind of injuries around the wound itself, okay? And um, what it actually means is the guy was alive when the procedure was inflicted upon him. Wow. Um, one of the things they find during the autopsy is um, when they remove the skull cap is that the trauma of vital reaction was so great that he had multiple hematomas in the brain of small blood vessels. That's um, from extreme pain, isn't it? Correct. If, uh, like, say, a person would be crushed to death uh, slowly, um, like they were run over by something, uh, and there was no way they could get away, the, the absolute terror and the pain would just start popping blood vessels in the brain, and this guy's uh, brain was covered with them. Yeah, that's terrifying. The um, we are investigating another case we just got from England, and we just started that investigation just a couple of days ago. So I don't know where that's going to go yet, but um, from the person that's the researcher in England that sent it to us, 
Um, he's pretty sure that uh, we're probably looking at the same type of abduction, and although they haven't found the body yet, uh, that we had with the Todd Cease case in Pennsylvania. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Todd Cease case, um, that happened up in Northumberland County in August of 2002 on Montour Ridge. Um, it started with a missing persons report. The report was made to the Point Township Police Department on August 4, 2002. The missing individual's name was Todd Cease, white male, 39 years old. On that date, Mr. Cease advised his wife he was going to spot some preseason deer up on Montour Ridge. He takes his four-wheeler and he leaves. States that he'll be home by noon at two o'clock to arrive reports him missing because he's not an individual that would not be there on time. Very uh, out of sorts for uh, him. Uh, search is mounted by the local police, state police, fire company. Mr. Cease's ATV is found undamaged along with his boot, which was found in a tree. No Mr. Cease. Searching cadaver dogs find nothing. The divers search a, a pond on the Cease property. They find nothing. Local fishermen see an object over the power lines and see something being pulled into it. A local farmer says he sees the same thing. The search resumes and searchers find the uh, search is stopped for the day. The following day it resumes and the searchers find the body of Todd, Todd Cease in a thicket of bushes 150 yards from his residence wearing only his underwear. He has a, uh, a burn mark on his left temporal lobe and three feet away from him is lying a dead snake, rattlesnake. Uh, he has no snake bites on him. The, the snake has no visible signs of any uh, trauma. Uh, he was not bitten by the snake. He is emaciated. Uh, he is pale. The only damage, like I said, was a temporal lobe, of burnt, like a burn mark, black uh, burn mark. Mm -hmm. The coroner removes the body to the Indian Town, Fort on Indian Town Gap, um, which to do the post, uh, I trained at Indian Town Gap. Uh, there's no facilities there to do an autopsy. The body receives a second post at Allentown Hospital. There's no ruling on the cause of death. Uh, foul play and trauma are automatically ruled out, so they wait toxicology. The uh, ATV was full of gas. The key was in the ignition. It was on. Uh, it was actually off, but the key was on. There was uh, no footprints in the ground around it, no marks of animals or any distress or a fight or anything like that. Uh, the boot was found up in a tree about 25 or 30 feet. Uh, they never found the rest of his clothes or the other boot, and uh, that was a six-square-mile search of the Montour Ridge that produced nothing. Uh, the family was not allowed to view the body. Uh, the body was returned for burial six to eight weeks later. The cause of death uh, came out uh, as a cocaine overdose. A cocaine overdose? Uh, yeah, Mr. Cease had no record of any uh, cocaine overdose, speaking with some of his friends and, and school chums. Uh, there was never, never any use of drugs. Uh, matter of fact, he, he was uh, uh, prone to be a guy that walked around from morning till night with a can of Mountain Dew soda in his hand. Hmm. So a lot of the issues with that incident uh, were where are the missing clothes? Why was the body not seen during a search of six square miles, including the property, where all these people were walking around, including cadaver dogs and search dogs? And the bodies found 25 yards from the pond, which was already searched by divers. How'd the boot get up in the tree? Why was the family not allowed to view the body? Why was the body taken to a military uh, facility for a post? And why was there a second post? So, you know, the issues continued. Where are the fishermen and the farmer statements? You can't find those. Uh, there was no history of drug use. Why was the body emaciated and not bloated due to the heat that time of the year? Why did the body show no signs of post-mortem lividomy or rigor mortis or liver mortis? 
why after all these years is this still an open case with the police? We've tried to get their report, and we were told if we kept bothering them, we'd be charged with harassment, uh, and it is an open case. Now, in the state of Pennsylvania, as I'm sure in all cases in other states, when a case is open, the only reason a case is kept open because it's listed as a murder. They don't have an individual or individuals to go after. But there's no questions being asked about this, except for possibly you. Otherwise, everyone's just accepting it. No, well, everybody's pretty much accepting it, but uh, there are other investigators that are looking at the case, as well as myself. Uh, there's actually even an investigator from Hawaii that was involved. But, um, you know, as long as it's an open case, you can't get anything. You're not going to get the police report. You're not going to get the autopsy reports. You're not going to get anything, as long as it's an open case. Now, if it was a closed case, that would be a different story. You just file Freedom of Information Act and you get the information. But if it's an open case, it will stay open forever. Oh, so that's the reason they got an open case, so you can't find anything about it. Mm, pretty much. You know, the question on abduction, basically, is what is it? You know, are we dealing with us extraterrestrial beings, interdimensional beings, time travelers, or all of the above? You know, people are being affected in a very real, real way in this, and, you know, there's death involved, and it's and it's happening to many, many people. So, and this, and we, these numbers you have are just representing America, too, like you were saying before. So who knows how much is going on around the world? Yep, that's the 50 states. That's, uh, that's it. That's, uh, that's, nothing out of, that's nothing from Canada or any other, other country. I mean, that's just the United States. Well, how often are they finding these kind of things, Butch? You know, as far as finding the bodies, you know, that have been mutilated? Uh, well, like I said, there's, you know, there's a couple cases. The, the most recent case would be um, Egypt. And uh, that takes place in 2005 in Beni Mazar, which is on the outskirts of the of the main one of the main cities. Uh-huh. But anyway, um, three families are pretty much butchered in the same way that our boy in uh, in Brazil was. Wow! They uh, arrest a guy uh, for the murders. I mean, every man, woman, child, uh, pig, dog, whatever was in the places were basically butchered the same way as cattle. Uh, they arrest a retarded man who uh, really just has a problem walking, uh, got the IQ of maybe a seven or eight-year-old, and he's charged with the murders. Uh, he, he lives in a town uh, 15 miles away. Um, they couldn't produce how he got to this Benny Mazar area. Uh, it's right outside of Cairo. I knew I'd come up with it sooner or later. <laughs> okay. And uh, um, he uh, is charged with the murders of the three families. Uh, you got to remember now we're talking about somebody with a, with a mind of a seven-year-old, so we don't know how they came up with with his modus operandi of killing three families and uh, where did he get the instruments to do this kind of uh, cutting and tearing and what did he do with all the organs that were taken. So he's brought to trial and uh, a, a, a young lady lawyer uh, takes the case for him and uh, you know they present the case and after a couple of years he's acquitted. To this day he is not allowed to leave his house without being under a police watch or a policeman, uh, even to go to the mosque or to uh, go shopping with his family. He's under constant police surveillance. Oh, that's weird. And then uh, one of the most recent reports we got, which it just seems to be at a standstill right now, and um, I'm assuming there's some issues. We got a report, uh, or we had two researchers uh, send us an email and uh, from England and they said they had some found some alleged documentation of mummified remains of persons found in trees in the 16th through the 19th centuries with strange holes in their bodies. And I sent back to them, I said, well, what exactly do you mean and how did you find this? And they said, well, 
they were working on a research paper having to do with archaeology, and they stumbled across some writings or papers or books describing missing people found hanging in trees, mummified, but only a few days after they were reported missing. And they bared strange holes in their body, and they had some missing body parts. I, I questioned them again, and I said, you know, well, how, what, I mean, where did you find the information? They said, well, they were looking through old records, and England was one of those countries where they kept records on everything. Mm-hmm. And this was a, a village, uh, and they were going back through records trying to locate some information on some locations that they were looking for, and they came upon uh, a number of these cases. Then they really started looking, and then they found more. And then they were, when they asked to photograph or copy that information, they were told, no, they couldn't do that because they don't allow the photographs, and they're surely not going to allow these old books to be put into a copy machine. So last thing we heard from them was they were going to try a different approach and try to get back to uh, the one place, especially where the stuff from the 16th century, see if they could get some kind of uh, relief uh, with, you know, maybe just let us write down the information on our own paperwork. And so I don't know where they got with that, but we haven't heard from them for a few, maybe six months. So I had sent an email off not too long ago, maybe three months ago, and I hadn't had any reply. So maybe they shut down or maybe it was just, you know, a hoax to begin with. Or they were, they were shut down. <laughs> they, they were eliminated, which ha- happens in this kind of thing sometimes, too. I'm pretty sure that's pretty true, because I had uh, a woman from uh, the United States who most of her family came from England, and, and there's some royalty involvement there. That she proved. I mean, you know, uh, I got to a site where uh, it gave the uh, listing of royalty and relatives of royalty and stuff like that, and, there, and her father's name was there. So I took her at her word, and she was relating uh, sort of the same thing. She didn't mention the holes or the um, mutilation, but she mentioned that, uh, you know, bodies were being found on roofs uh, up in trees that were way too high to climb. And trees aren't very high in England. You know, they don't grow very tall. Mm -hmm. And they're pretty sparse. But found in mountainous areas, uh, came to the top floating in bogs, and all in that same area of, uh, or of time in 16th, 17th, 18th century. And she was documenting all that stuff. Uh, now, she had taken ill about a year ago, and I haven't tried to contact her since, but I, I should just to see how she's doing. It uh, wasn't very serious, but it was uh, one of those debilitating things like colitis or something. Mm-hmm. So, um, so maybe there was something to the story, but, you know, since I don't live in England, it's a little hard for me to get information. But this new case that we were just presented with, um, uh, I just got it a couple of days ago, like I said, so I just started really working on it. And um, and the guy says he'll give me all the information and help me get all the information I need. So we'll see how that works out. These are but, amazing. So, I mean, these are basically just like the cattle mutilations we've heard about growing up for the longest time, but just on people then. Sure, exactly. I mean, I mean they're identical. When you, look at, when you look at the pictures of the cadaver from Brazil, and if you put a picture of a, of a, uh, a butchered cow aside of it, I mean, uh, the, 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 it's identical. The holes are the same. They're the same size. They're cut with the same precision. You know, cows have multiple stomachs. Mm-hmm. And when you remove the udders of a cow, and, and I asked a veterinarian about this. He said to remove the udders of a cow with a scalpel and knowing what you're doing, to not cut into one of those stomachs would be pretty much impossible. I have pictures of cows where the udders taken out, where the stomachs are exposed. They're not even scratched. My gosh. 
So, you know, <laughs> it's it's kind of amazing um, in this day and age for people to say that, oh, we have that type of equipment. I just went through an operation, uh, and I got a couple holes in me. And trust me, they are not perfectly round. Hmm. Uh, they're not perfectly smooth. Uh, they're pretty much jagged. Got the job done, but nothing like this. I mean, this stuff is being done with precision instruments that I don't even know if we even have. The mutilations nowadays, I remember hearing about this, uh, my gosh, what was it, like 70s, early 80s, you used to hear about it a lot, but you don't hear about it much, but it's still going on just as much, isn't it? Uh, yeah. It's just, yeah, it's, what's it, just a big hush-hush thing then? It's just no one's allowed to speak about it? Well, yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, uh, I'm, I mean I've been fortunate that uh, there are a lot of people out there have read the reports and have did a little research on their own, and they, they realize that this stuff has gone on. And, uh, you know, although I've been asked to uh, stop it, and I even received a call one time to uh, stop mentioning it and stop talking about it, and then when I called the number back from caller ID, the number was disconnected. That happened in a matter of three minutes. That's mm. pretty hard to do, not unless your phone company's got something going for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you're on something like that, too, something, an issue like this, and whoever they are, they want you to stop. They let you know. They got all their little secret ways, but it's a matter yeah. of who they are. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, I, I just think that um, one of the things is, you know, if you're out, whether it's ufology or this or, or abductions or, or cryptozoology, uh, no matter what genre you're looking at or phenomenon, um, you know, if you're out there, you're out there for a search for the truth, and if they would just say that to everybody and everybody would shut up, you know, I mean, you'd never even know there were UFOs anywhere. Exactly. You're actually involved in all those fields, too, by the way, aren't you? Yes, okay. yes. I don't think I said that in the beginning. I mean, you're not just into this abduction. You're into everything. Yeah. Uh, we, we researched uh, UFO sightings, uh, crashes. Um, our website, uh, which I'll give you again, is uh, paufosearch.com. Uh, if you look on the front page, there are uh, some cases from Pennsylvania and around uh, that we have investigated. There's one case on there from the Harrisburg flap uh, that was done by another researcher. But they pretty much tell it the way it is and what we found. There's a couple in there that, you know, they say it was a flap, and we say it never took place. And we offered the proof, and uh, the proof is there. And I always say if anybody thinks that, you know, they have more information that would change our ending or our end of our research on a certain case, let me know. I'll post it. To, to date, I haven't had anything like that happen. I mean, we, we're pretty thorough with our research. Uh, we have two mobile units. We have one uh, fully – well, we have two fully equipped, and they have everything from uh, – satellite communications to uh, built-in laptops and high IF cameras and regular cameras and you name it we got it uh, trucks are both loaded um, we have one here in, in the east end of the state and we have one out in the western part of the state uh, the one out in the western part of the state is a four-wheel drive uh, only because of the area about out there uh, where it's at and uh, the one here is a is a is a, a Ford panel a new Ford panel I think we're the only ones in the country that have anything like that we have pretty much everything on there we need. We are going to put in some uh, um, television equipment into the into the big van, um, only because of some stuff. We uh, don't only investigate things in Pennsylvania. I mean, we've uh, we're investigating the Brown Mountain Lights in North Carolina. Um, I've helped investigate cases in pretty much every state in the union so far. Uh, we've helped a lot of other groups research stuff, uh, smaller groups that needed help or didn't have the database or the equipment. Uh, we've helped them out. 
Uh, we've uh, helped some researchers in Poland. Uh, we've helped some researchers in Germany. We've helped some researchers in England. We've helped some researchers in Spain. And just really, you know, searching for things that they were trying to find here in the United States or with a case they may have in their country that they think is similar to a case that we may have had here, and I'll, I'll do that research for them. We'll help anybody out. I mean, I haven't turned anybody down ever, and I don't think I ever will because, you know, we get people that talk about cases that happened back in the 50s. Now, databases back in the 50s on UFOs were zero, zilch. There was none. All right. But, you know, if you do enough searching in old newspapers and stuff like that, you can come up with some stuff. Now, Pennsylvania, since 1947, we can document uh, about 2,200, uh, 2,300 cases of UFO sightings. I don't have the ratio on which would be hoaxes because mm -hmm. been, you know, the reports come from so many different locations. But we don't have a lot of hoax reports come to us. I think in the, in the four years, almost four years now that we've been up and running, I think I've had like six, uh, and they were quite obvious. And the one was a known hoaxer that I knew from a previous group. Um, so I, I think we're getting a lot of good information We'll answer anybody's questions. I mean, whether they want to uh, know how to use a piece of equipment or how to do an investigation or what they should do during a report. Also on our website, we I put up uh, started putting up a couple months ago uh, investigative techniques on you know how to use IF, uh, IF, uh, IF cameras, how to use uh, investigative techniques and questioning, how to control take and control evidence, um, how to seal it, how to make sure that it stays proper. Uh, this month I'll be doing, or last month we did uh, on how to use um, uh, EMF detectors and uh, the different types and, and how you would use them with UFOs, types of equipment to carry, uh, things that they should not do during a paranormal investigation, especially people with, uh, you know, cameras with the camera straps hanging down. <laughs> exactly. Uh, they have caused so many false positives in UFO in, in paranormal pictures that it's crazy. Or, or, they, or they're smoking a cigarette. I was just going to uh, say that. Or cigarette smoking. You're taking a picture and the guy behind you is uh, smoking. Yeah, and, and all of a sudden, you know, there's this big case about plasma. I, you know, we, we've listed different books people should read on UFOs. We've listed uh, books on uh, uh, different people, uh, books people should read on paranormal or cryptozoology. We always encourage people to go to conferences. You know, there's conferences held all over the country. Not so much in the last two years because of the economy, but... That'll change again. It'll get back to where it was. But we encourage them to go to the conferences. Uh, we speak a lot. We go out and speak a lot. We get interviewed a lot on uh, radio shows. Uh, been on coast to coast a few times. Uh, we do one or two radio shows a, a month. And it's just uh, it's good to get the information out to the people because, you know, I, I'm not here to train researchers, really. Um, I'm looking for the truth, and I want to find out what's going on and, and uh, you know, take these cases and just look into them and, see if they're credible, uh, and if they're credible, you know, uh, the investigation goes well, and we come up with the right answers, we'll post it. And out of all these cases you have, because you cover the whole gamut here, what are some, like, your most memorable cases, you know, that have really stuck in your head, whether they're UFO, abduction, or ghost, whatever? I, I think the one that sticks in my head the most is the Carbondale, Pennsylvania case. That, that to me, was really one of the very first cases that we took on. It was a uh, the case... Um, where uh, an object lands in a silt pond in Carbondale, Pennsylvania, and it's witnessed by uh, a group of teenagers standing on the corner on a Saturday night. And uh, like I mentioned to you before, you know, in that part of the country, Carbondale is a very beautiful little town. Mm -hmm. But it's in that distressed coal area, you know, 
and uh, not a whole lot to do on a Saturday night. And uh, they saw this thing uh, come out of the east to west in the early morning sky, and it's kind of passing over Russell Park, and they're standing on a corner about a block away, and they watch this bright, hot-looking object go behind uh, the park and uh, into a, um, an abandoned coal property and um, winds up in a silt pond on the property. Uh, they run over and they say that they see a light coming from underneath the water that's glowing and there's a sizzling sound. Uh, this all takes place November 9, 1974. Uh, the witnesses are aged uh, 14 to 19, uh, four guys and a girl, and uh, they call the police and the police sh uh, don't show up right away and they call them again and they finally show up after three hours. Of course, the whole scenario after we got the original investigator's report was just phenomenal because it was just like not one thing in there in that report which was pretty much the report I mean everybody believed that report the gentleman was a skeptic people said military were there and took something out of the pond while nobody was there you know we get the report we go there we've been there a number of times uh, we've done everything we could up there taking samples, measurements, photographs, and uh, it boils down to myself talking to the originator of the report, and uh, he says he didn't realize that anybody was even interested in that anymore because it was, a, it was a hoax. And I told the gentleman, I said, well, I can tell you this. I can't prove what went into the silt pond that night. That's impossible. I said, but just looking at what was taken out of the silt pond and saying that that's what went into the silt pond, I said, I can probably, without a doubt, prove forensically that that lantern was not what went into that pond. And what they pulled out of the pond was a old railroad lantern that they said was what went into the pond. It, it just wasn't true. I, I mean, you know, we bought some of the lanterns, the original lanterns, the same type, Got a hold of one of the batteries, uh, same type of battery that was in it. Checked with the manufacturer, the lantern specifications. I, I mean, we went through everything. Measurements, uh, time of day. We have pictures of the light glowing under the pond. And we tested with our own lanterns of the same type and battery configuration. And um, although I've heard some researchers say that they put that same lantern under the water for 35 and 40 hours and it stayed lit. <laughs> okay. Well... Uh, the only problem with that story is that uh, when they pulled this lantern out and opened it up, it was found to the battery was split open. Uh, the internal chemicals inside the battery were pouring out uh, into the case. The case was all corroded. The uh, contact points were all corroded. And according to the battery manu manufacturer, that thing wouldn't have lit no matter what you did, even if you held a match to it. <laughs> uh, a picture of the light under the U on the of the uh, alleged UFO lantern slash lantern on the uh, which we have a picture of in the uh, on the website shows this bright glowing light under the water and uh, I held an LED light which we waited at the bottom so the light would shine up and we threw that in of course on a string so I could retrieve it they're a little expensive and although the light was waterproof uh, it did not show anything as bright as this light now a lantern uh, this railroad lantern has one little nine volt light in it you know just like the old flashlights had they could buy for 60 cents. There's no way it caused that bright light because this LED light has 25 LEDs and it didn't show anything near as bright as the picture. Showed. And this just so fell out of the sky was the story too, right? Correct. It just fell out of the sky. Then they said it was moving around uh, in the pond. Uh, a policeman actually fired at it when it came after him. It started to come toward him and he fired. There were just certain things that were so strange with the case after we got through and really after we got the information we got a copy of the report 
you know, the facts were just, they were taken from the original case file. And, um, you know, it was our opinion, having been involved in looking at the Carbondale UFO lantern incident, that the techniques of the investigation were faulty in that scientific and common forensic te uh, techniques were not even followed. Analysis of the water sample was not revealed, nor the water-air temperature difference of 16 degrees was never questioned. The battery was not taken for testing by, uh, to a reputable lab. The photos were not taken uh, by the UF investigator on the scene or the police, but a private photographer who copyrighted the photos immediately. Family will not release those photos, even if they have them anymore. Who even knows that? The uh, lantern, the original lantern, was given to the police chief, who said he sold it at a yard sale for five bucks. <laughs> The scene, uh, sight drawing, is totally out of proportion, uh, making the movement of the object absolutely minimal. Um, the movement of the lantern, was said, they said, was caused by underwater currents is not factual because there is no underwater current in a silk pond. The court is unclear as to the person or persons taking witnesses' statements, you know, and, you know, another thing came up was why would a scuba diver from New York used as local divers who refused entry to the pond on the grounds of safety and possible radiation contamination? Uh, NORAD, why would NORAD and NASA be contacting the Carbondale Police Department? Who recorded the witnesses' statements and where were those recordings done? What was discussed with Fells Planetarium and the Radiation Management Corporation? Uh, and who had the conversations with these two outfits and why? Were the persons taking the radiation readings trained in the use of the radiation detection equipment? How did the researchers conclude that the pond was extremely polluted? Why are no photographs or police report included in the original report from this investigator? Uh, did police or UFO investigators or the press influence witness statements? Who knows? And was, UFO it, was, was this a small item, too? I mean, did the kids think it was a lantern falling, or where did the lantern idea come from? No, they, they didn't say anything about a lantern. They, they, they were just blamed that they threw the lantern in. Oh, okay. Uh, they said what they saw was a glowing hot-looking object fall from the sky into the pond. Okay. Now, they didn't, they didn't see it go into the pond. They saw it go behind a row of trees, which is behind a park, which they were on the other side of. When they got there, they saw the glowing light under the water and, the, and the, um, they heard the sizzling sound. Oh, okay, so they didn't actually, like, see something fall into the sky. They just, the cover story is, is that the kids threw the lantern in the lakes, what it is then. Correct. The kids said they saw something fall from the sky and fall into that area. And when they went around that area is when they saw it in the pond. Oh, okay. Um, you know, when was the scene secured? How, uh, who recorded statements? It was, it was just so much missing, uh, you know. And, and contrary to that report, that the object in the pond was a lit railroad lantern, the lantern described in, in the report could not have possibly been the source of the light witnessed within the pond. So it's our opinion and other opinion of other investigators who have researched this that there was no way that lantern was the cause of the light in the soap pond. So, you know, basically there's just so many things that came up with the thing that were so wrong. You know, the lantern was reportedly to be thrown a distance of 20 to 30 feet from the shoreline by the children. Mm -hmm. And it, there's no way it could have landed handle down because the battery is at the bottom. So it would have landed light down. Uh, the lantern, because of its weight distribution, could have only landed with the bulb down. There's no way. And it would have uh, sunk in this reportedly quicksand-like bottom that they report the pond had. Covered battery, like I said, the battery case was cracked. There was internal seepage, corrosion. Uh, There's no way the battery was functional. 
It doesn't make sense is why in heaven's name, if they just thought it was a lantern, why would they even try to recover it for the most part? Exactly. Um, a lot of things that were wrong with the report were times, measurements, statements, forensics, witness statements, drawings, and a whole bunch of conclusions that meant nothing. The UF investigators do not show up at the scene of the event until November 11th, approximately 34 to 39 and a half hours after the fact. A lot of stuff can happen in that time. Exactly. Was there any, uh, did you get any weird readings or anything around the area or, you know, any, no? No, we didn't. We tested, we got test, we took water tests and sample tests of the soil under the water. Then um, there was no splash over of water from alleged bolides or creators, uh, cre or, or, or a crater noticed by the diver. You know, a bolide traveling at high speed impacting water and silt in 15 feet of water would have left a crater as big as a house. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the report contained a lot of hearsay, second, third part, second and third party information, very little direct examination, and a query that we did of NASA astrophysics data system shows no meteorite activity on November 9, 1974. No report submissions of the UFO investigator uh, from another group that was there uh, was ever located. On the first attempt to retrieve the object in the pond, it would have been physically impossible for a police officer to say that he tried to reach it at a depth of 15 feet with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So basically we came up with, you know, it was our opinion that there were neither bolides nor a railroad lantern that uh, could have possibly caused the light in the silt pump. The fact that the battery was inoperable, no bolides or meteor activity was found in the area was a simple truth. Many of the things in that report that we received from the original investigator were flawed on many counts. So the fact that the report was defended over so many years as a factual finding is astounding. We're going to keep this case uh, shall remain open as an unknown, uh, and it'll remain open until such time as uh, a factual and scientific conclusion is brought forth, and yeah. that's just going to keep it. It says there's too many flaws in there. The key one is if it's a small area there and a lantern supposedly falls in the lake, why in heaven's name would they spend all the time and energy trying to even find it? <laughs> yeah, and if you'd see the lantern, which there's a picture on that in that report of the lantern and the battery, and there's also a uh, photo overhead photographs of the of the of the silt pond. I, I mean, there's also a picture there that was taken of the light showing from underneath the pond, underneath the water. Mm -hmm. You look at the bright light there, and you consider that you're looking at a muddy silt pond, and you look how bright that light is, and you look at that lantern, and there's no way that that lantern gave off that kind of light ever in its best day, brand new. Wow. So it, you know, it would be like a single bulb flashlight. An old single bulb flashlight with two double two uh, D batteries in it. Period. Only this would have a this would have a uh, six volt battery in. It. So there's actually no idea of the size of whatever this is. Then is there? It's just all hearsay. All we all we can find out is a lot of people said it was taken out on a flatbed truck that had U.S. Air Force stamped on the side of the door. Oh, that's that's normal protocol for taking a lantern out. Yep. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it had a small crane on it. Uh, you know, one of these portable cranes. You know, that's attached to the body. Right. And uh, it was taken out while there was nobody there. And um, it, it's just an amazing piece. It was it was really a lot of fun to work on because, uh, you know, uh, the best way to go about doing an investigation, and I don't care if it's on a UFO or if it's cryptozoology or if it's a paranormal case, you need to follow it forensically. Uh, did this happen and can it happen? You know, um, did I see what I saw? Did uh, Okay, so this is what I saw and this is... You know, this is what it did. Now, one of the things, you know, with the ufology, uh, you know, the first thing you would do is check news reports and, you know, check everything, newspapers, even in that area, that even if you don't live there. Research old cases to see if there's been sightings there before. Just the forensic way of going about it, trying to prove that what was reported to you could have taken place. 
not that it did, just could have that taken place. Were the conditions, were, is the story uh, consistent, known reactions of, of those types of phenomena? You know, when somebody tells me they see a bright, right, a bright white tiny ball go from one horizon to the other in a matter of a second or less, and it's zigzagging across the sky. Well, I know it's not, hmm. you know, TBA. Exactly. <laughs> and it's not a satellite. A fast walker goes. It goes. I mean, I've seen two. And, I mean, they, they crossed the horizon in front of me with three other researchers following it, you know, with binoculars and photographs. And they're going like, that's unbelievable. Now, uh, a lot of people misconstrue meteors and bolides, you know, with UFOs. But you got to remember, UFOs don't show tails. Meteors don't make right-hand turns like a lot of the UFOs do. That's correct. Some will just stop dead and, and, and shoot straight up. So, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to see sick in my time. I started researching back in the late 80s when my Wi-Fi and three other people saw what we could not believe above a mountain in Tucson, Arizona, uh, which was a uh, about a 300-yard-long object, kind of rusty copper in color, just floating above the mountain and then just take off in a shot so fast you couldn't even see it go. Wow. And then when I uh, made some inquiries and tried to find out if anybody else saw it, and everybody went like, nah, you didn't see that. I thought, you know what? I know what I saw. And my wife's not, you know, she's, <laughs> if there's a big skeptic in my life, it's her. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, she's kind of seen enough now where she kind of believes what I tell her. Is that the one that got you interested in this subject then? Yep. After everybody told me, no, you didn't see what you saw, I thought, you know what, I know what I saw. So uh, that I, I kind of stayed with it for a while, and I, then I got away from it because I was getting, I was getting um, frustrated. I couldn't find the information I wanted. Uh, nobody was talking. I got tired of listening to the same people over and over again uh, talk about Roswell, uh, which was like the premier case. And then I'm thinking, you know, all these cases. And then for some reason, I was on the Internet uh, and was reading something, and it just bit me again. And I dug out all my information I had saved from the last time, and I've been at it ever since. So it's been 20, pretty close to 25 years now. That's cool. You know, we were talking off air about uh, those mountain lights. I forgot where you said they were. Do you want to touch on that? That sounded like an amazing story. Uh, yeah, right now we're investigating the brown mountain lights down in Morganton, North Carolina. Uh, we were down, and like I said to you, I said the whole trip down, I'm driving down there thinking, oh, boy, what a waste of gas, money, rooms, food, you know, the whole nine yards. And uh, we got up there, and um, I was really fully not, not expecting to see anything. I thought, you know, it's just old hearsay or it's, you know, hallucinations or maybe it's just uh, just the way the mountain sits and the sun sets and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we set up all our gear. We got the cameras out, the infrared, and, you know, uh, recordings and gas detectors, uh, uh, EMF detectors. I mean, we had everything out set up and uh, a little took a little while because it was, uh, it was, you know, one of those humid nights. It was a hot day. It was very humid at night. And so there was just like this... Um, like a mini fog setting in, but uh, it cooled off and that kind of went away and the lights came right up and they showed as pronounced orbs and orbs in shape. They were uh, multicolored. They were very large from the standpoint uh, or the standing point where we were, which is about maybe three, four miles away from the actual Brown Mountain. They were huge. Uh, they would just come out of nowhere. Uh, they would expand and contract. They would move up and down, side to side, uh, follow down to the edge of the bottom of the mountain and come back up and disappear. 
they were multicolors. They were white, yellow, blood uh, blood red, not like you'd see um, like a sunset red. This was uh, a brilliant blood red and blue. We watched them through uh, infrared, uh, which they were really pronounced through infrared. To the naked eye, they were pronounced through binoculars, but through the infrared, they were really, they had shape. Uh, they were not jagged. They were perfectly round. Some went higher than others. They went past the top of the mountain, then receded back down to the mountain. But when they disappeared, it was like they just, they vanished. They just dissipated, like gone. We found no gases in the area that would cause that with the gas detectors. We found no um, no uh, electromagnetic uh, or radiological readings at all. Pictures we got were very good. So it was it was kind of an amazing thing. And this is a common occurrence in the area you're saying, right? They're semi-common. People tend to see it. Yeah. it's uh, They've been going on since 1722. Hmm. Uh, the original story is that the lights are, there was a, an Indian-Indian war, Indians against Indians, and the indigenous people started this war with each other. And there were many braves killed on top of the mountain. That's where the battle took place. And um, weeks after, you know, people were seeing these lights and saying, well, that was, uh, that was the... Uh, uh, the wives and family members looking for their dead warriors, you know, walking around the mountain with torches because they couldn't go up in the daylight because it'd be, you know, somebody start a fight with them, so they would do it at night. And um, it's been looked at twice by the government. They came up with nothing. Uh, we looked at um, what the mountain is made of, which is a, a, a quartz. Uh, we looked at uh, seismograph uh, in the area of um, maybe the earth shifting, you know, or, or tectonic plates moving a little bit and causing these sparks, but they're not sparks. They don't come up as a spark. They come up, they come out of nowhere. You could be looking at a spot and uh, whether you're looking through infrared or binoculars and, you, you know, you're looking at a spot and this thing just comes out of nowhere, just grows. It just like comes out of the dark and gets to a certain size and then it just starts moving around and there'll be another one inside of it. It'll be three and four or five off to the right and there'll be three or four over here and then one down here and then they'll all go away and it'll be like one or two and then it'll go back to one. I mean, there's no rhyme or reason to them. Wow. So uh, we're going to go down this time, and I think what we're going to do is, and I'm, I'm going to expect some help from somebody that I just learned knows a lot about TV stuff, um, to hook a camera up that we can keep running from start to finish and stay the whole night mm-hmm. and get it recorded and mounted on top of the truck so nobody can trip over it or knock it over or something like that. So it's out of the way, and it'll record to a, you know, to a, to uh, a recorder in the truck, and that we can watch it also on the uh, the, the our uh, computer mounted in the truck. So uh, it's a very interesting case. It, it's there is one group I guess that went down and, and looked at it a couple years ago, and they said it's plasma, and they can create the same effect in their microwave in the kitchen. Okay. Uh, for some reason, I just don't buy that one too much. I'm I'm not a real fan of plasma, uh, although plasma does exist. I, I just don't think this is the case because um, why would it change color? Well, you said this has got a solid shape too when you looked under infrared, right? Correct. Yep. When you're looking through infrared, when you're looking uh, naked eye or binoculars, you have like a fuzzy a ball, but it's fuzzy. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It, it's got an edge. Right. You're looking through infrared, you're looking at a perfectly round ball. Okay. Well, plasma wouldn't be that then because plasma wouldn't have a solid object behind it. That's correct. So producing it in this microwave might be a fun thing to try, but I don't know. I just don't excite me with that. Well, that's, that's a very interesting one, actually. I'm definitely going to have to come down there and see that one. Oh, yeah. It's it's really something to see. Like I said, talk about someone being skeptical, man. I was all the way down. I kept saying to myself, what a waste of time. What a waste. 
what a waste of this, what a waste of that. And then when I saw him, I, I was I was yelling at the guys, you know, the camera's rolling, you got this up, is this running, is you taking pictures, you know. And uh, I, I really got excited when I saw him. And they were there for a long time. I mean, we we started seeing them about 7.30 at night, quarter of 8 maybe. And then by um, about 23, 30 hours, they were pretty much gone. Now, they say, from talking to people down here, which hundreds of people come to look at this, there are three lookout points. We were just at one. But the lookout points are packed. I mean, people bring coolers, cameras, binoculars, and they just set up for the evening. But it's really something to see. I mean, it's it's something where there's you can't draw any scientific conclusion, but it's factual. You know, it's really uh, it's astounding to see these lights. They and you just, got videos of these, you said then. Yeah, we got videos and we got still pictures, uh, infrared. Wow. Yep. So this time when we go down, though, we want to have some kind of television set up where we can turn the camera on and let it run and just record the whole nine yards from start to finish. Right. Uh, where we can time it, date it, and, uh, you know, how often are they coming out? Is there any sequence? Are they coming out in the same areas? Are they starting in the same location? Or are they just random? Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any time lapse between them? Like, do they come out every 30 seconds? Or, you know, anything we can get. Uh, to help us, you know, try to come, you know, find an answer to this, which is really, it's quite something to see. That it's amazing. Say, like I was telling you off air, I can probably give you a hand with some of this stuff. Yeah, I'm hoping. That <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely going to be a trip this summer because you got my interest and you know I got the equipment to check it out. <laughs> yeah, and and we we really want to get that set up on our truck because there's a couple other things that would it would wor- really work out with when you have a. When you have a TV set up or, or a video set up where you can set it on something to watch, you can go about doing other things, and you still know that there's a set of eyes basically on, on what you're looking for. Exactly. Whether it's, whether it's a Bigfoot uh, sighting or, or, or uh, strange lights or something in the sky or you know something in a field or even a house where there's supposed to be paranormal activity. One of the things that always makes me a little crazy, and, and it's, it's my lack of paranormal experience that I relate this. I find it hard. If, if I was going to do a perfect investigation, I would set everything up with cameras all over the place. There wouldn't be a doorway or a window that wasn't being watched by something. Exactly. I'm the exact same way. Group, and I know some groups do that, but they'll, they'll do like a room. Well, if I got noise coming up on the roof, I'm going to have, I want cameras to the roof. I want cameras to the back, sides of the house, front of the house, inside the house, outside the house. I want cameras everywhere. Now that's a little expensive. I understand that. But I think if you have camera that you can, you know, or two set up on it on your vehicle or in the vehicle or outside the vehicle where you can watch areas that you're no, normally not going to be able to see, you can put your efforts toward, you know, interior or an area in the interior. And um, another thing is I think when I see, you know, somebody running the camera in the room and they're looking for something to happen in the room, but they have the lights out. I mean, the lights are on rather. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be better to have the lights out and use infrared? Yeah, infrared. I'm a I'm a firm believer in real, true infrared, not infrared with IR emitters, because you can get false readings. Infrared that sees in the dark. Correct. Uh, yeah, I can help you out with that. I'm sure. I mean, I got that 16 camera system that'll catch anything. <laughs> oh, that's neat. You know, those are some of the cases. Uh, you know, that I've worked on that we are working on. Um, we try to keep everything uh, as up to date as we can. We did uh, Presque Isle Landing, which we truly believe there was a landing there. I mean, even the Air Force said that, and it's still in Project Blue Book. Hmm. It's actually got its own number. So is that a factual landing case? I would say yes. Uh, was Carbondale Lantern UFO incident a lantern? I would say no. I'm not saying it was a UFO, 
But what I am saying is it was not a lantern. It was a magic lantern. Fell out of the sky, landed the wrong way against the gravity, and then jumped around underwater. Yeah, correct. <laughs> <laughs> and then they pulled it out with a huge lift and a semi. Yeah, that, that makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and I just, um, oh, there, there are a lot of interesting cases out there, and, and a lot of them aren't our cases. I mean, they're cases that are presented to us to look at or to, you know, maybe comment on. And I, I think, uh, you know, if you just keep taking a professional and scientific look at this stuff, you know, eventually you'll get factual, credible, and scientific evidence. Exactly. You know, and start to document these occurrences. And then you can let the interested parties, you know, let them look at it and let them better understand and draw their own conclusions. You know, I'm not going to say that's a definite UFO. Uh, what I see is a light going across the sky from one side to the other in a matter of a second or less. Well, we don't have anything like that, but I, I'm not going to stand there and say, well, that's a UFO. I will stand there and say it's a fast walker. Yeah, well, what I, like I was telling you earlier, too, I can't tell you what it is, but I can tell you what it isn't. That's kind of how I do it. And that's uh, the real way to do it. I mean, you know, you... Unless, you, unless you've got it in your hand or it's parked in your garage, you know, uh, you've got to have some kind of responsibility in your investigation, and you've got to use factual and unbiased evidence, and you've got to use the proper gathering techniques to evaluate and investigate. Actually, yeah, like I say, you know as well as I do when people come out, so-called experts, and they go there, they do something like, it is, and they announce what it is, and they say, that's it, period. You know, and they're full of crap. Well, yeah, uh, but, you know, there's some people you just can't say that to because they really believe what they saw is what they saw, and you're not going to talk them out of it. Oh, exactly. I, I mean, I've had people say that, you know, what they saw was an, a UFO flying across the sky up in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And I'm showing them reports on my computer in my truck uh, of, from NASA uh, where they're reporting a meteor sighting at the exact same time over the exact same area. And, so, and they're wondering why they didn't see the meteor the same time they were watching the UFO then, right? Yeah, not really. Just <laughs> well, Butch, we're, we're actually reaching our one-hour point here. Uh, we have so much more to cover with you yet. We're definitely going to have to have you on again. Anytime. Uh, anything else you want to say in closing? Your websites again or anything? Or any information or contact info? They can, if they go on, if they want to contact me, uh, when they go on to the webpage, which is www.ufo, oh, I'm sorry, www.pafosearch.com, all one word, and they, uh, go to the contact us button on the website and just hit click that. There's, uh, it'll give them information on how to contact me. It'll, it'll show, uh, an email. There'll be an email address if they want to email direct or if they want to put their comments or questions in and just hit the submit button and I I get it. And we try to answer all our email within a 24-hour period. We are a partner site with the UFO Research Center of uh, Research of uh, North America, UFORNA. Uh, they're located down in Georgia. Great group. Been around a long time. Great guys. Know what they're doing. Kind of have the same mission statement we do. And um, if there's anybody else, if anything else they're looking for on the site, we put researchers links on there. They can go in there. And if they're looking for something or a certain uh, researcher group, I list as many as I can. There's a lot of good groups out there. There's a lot of good investigators out there. Uh, if they can't find an investigator in your area, I had a lady from Quebec that was looking for one just a few weeks ago and uh, she couldn't find an investigator to make a report. And, uh, I made a couple phone calls and got an investigator to call her. So we'll help you out with that. Uh, we'll basically help you out with anything we can. Well, that's cool. You're full service, too. I mean, a lot of places are so set in their ways. They only do certain things. I mean, you'll help anybody with any type of issue, actually. Yeah. Well, like I said, uh, whether it's a case or just information, we'll help as much as we can. 
TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. Next up is Cassidy O'Connor talking about her books. Stay plugged. So we are here with Cassidy O'Connor, and she is the author of a book that, called Diaries of the Dark Side. Now, we, we've had her on the show a couple times in the past, but we recently published a second edition of the book. And so she's going to come on the show and tell us a little bit about uh, what the difference is between the first and second edition and some of the things that have uh, unfortunately transpired in relation to the case since the last time we talked. So uh, welcome to the show, Cassidy. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being on. Thank you. (laughs) I I had to check. So one thing, okay, before we get into the meat of the show, uh, or the meat of the interview, rather, I wanted to kind of, for our listeners who didn't hear the first interview, could you tell them a little bit about what the book is about and your background in writing about the paranormal. I know this isn't your first book. I believe it's your first book that you wrote entirely yourself. Is that correct? So you you did co-author a book before this, right? I have co-authored the book. That was my first uh, writing venue. And then I continued on to write articles. I've been placed in several different magazines and, and books. But then when I wrote Diaries of the Dark Side, I did it all on my own. It was actually a memoir which was a whole new avenue for me to pursue. It told the story of a family who had a very, very dark influence over their life for years, and it took several members of their family, and I was involved. And I helped them, among others, rid their family of this. And when everything was completed and their grandson was feeling much better, they had asked me to put their story into writing. And I really... I really didn't want to do it, and it took about a year. And I had cut communication off with the family once the case was closed, only to call her a year later because I was thinking of her and her sister had passed. And she said to me, Cassidy, I really wish you would have told our story for other people who may be going through something as crazy as this, and they don't realize it. And I think that we could save lives. And it was after I hung up on that phone call, within three days, the entire book was written. I hadn't slept, hadn't showered, hadn't eaten. I just kind of sat down in my office and I didn't stop until I finished it. You wrote mm. the book just right out of your mind right there, right? Fresh it, experience just happened. You wrote it all right down. I, what I did was I wrote it to the best of my ability um, from my memories of the case. And what I had was many files on the case. I was involved for years. And so I went back through them. And during the life of the case, you know, the, the few years before I was ever involved, I had gotten the back, you know, the backstory on things. And so I used all of that. And when I had completed the story, I printed it out and I sent it to her. And I asked her, I referred to her as Kathy in the book. I said, Kathy, I'd like you to read through this. And I'd like you to tell me if anything is incorrect, if any timeline is wrong. And she sent it back and said, thank you so much. You know, it was, it was wonderful. And I happened to meet Michael Clean by accident, because due to the severity of the story, 
I was going to self-publish it. And I had happened to come across him and I said, you were a self-publisher. I said, do you have any hints and clues? And he says, well, I just happened to own my own publishing company and I'd be interested. And it just, it, it kind of took off from there. Yeah, was, that, that was uh, right when I first started publishing other people's books. And this was the second book that I worked on. Uh, so and it, it continues to be one of the most successful books that I've published. That's an amazing story, too. For those people that haven't read it yet, you definitely want to go out and pick this up. Yeah, and how now, how has the attitude of the family changed uh, since the book has come out? Because... Originally, I understand they were very supportive, but now that, that might not be the case? Well, when this came out, I, I used to talk to the grandmother of the family, which I refer to again as Kathy, and I protected their names, I protected their location, I was vigilant in protecting this family. I mean, my first mistake was never get too close to a case, and the severity of this, not only in my own life, but in the child's life, was damaging. Everybody this child came in contact with was destroyed. And it wasn't him. You know, it, it was the influence that was with him. And so when the story came out, <clears throat> I, was, I was very close to them. Talking two, three times on the phone a week. They live a few hours away from me. Uh, you know, I kept up with the, the, the birthdays and everything. And <clears throat> when the story was put into print, they were very, very happy uh, they were ecstatic, actually. And every radio show or every write-up that was done on this memoir was immediately sent to them. I can't tell you how many radio shows, if not all of them, the grandmother sat and listened and would call me immediately after it was done. Cassidy, you did a great job. Thank you so much. And, oh, I'd say a few months back, uh, everything started to turn where I got my first royalty check. And, of course, all the funds that were made from this book were to go to the child himself because it was my goal. I didn't write this book to make money. I didn't write this book to be famous. I wrote this for them, and I made that very clear. And when, they got, when I got the first check, I called the house and didn't get an answer, which was very odd, and it went on for days. <clears throat> and I was very, very worried. And I actually finally shifted over to Facebook where I was blocked and there was no communication. I went, oh my goodness. I panicked. And it came out, oh, a few weeks later that they had been promised documentaries and they had been promised all these things that have to do with fame and glory. And that was more important to them. Oh, so really? That's a change they, of events, isn't it? That well, it is and it isn't. When, it, when you deal with dark influences as you know when you've interviewed me your equipment has screwed up <laughs> you've heard things you've lost things things that were inconceivable to happen yeah we weren't even going to mention that though i didn't want to jinx us this time <laughs> well yeah but the truth of it is there's a difference between the paranormal and evil there's a very large difference when i explain it to people i say they're two different libraries they're two different cities they're completely two different everything they're, they're opposite and a lot of people in the paranormal, they don't understand this. You know, there's these demon hunters and there's all these people on TV that are glamorous and wonderful. In real life, this is damaging. And this was the perfect, the perfect example of a perfect possession. These things seem to come full circle. And I have dealt with many cases. This was by far the worst. And this has come back to bite me in the rear end numerous times in my life. And like I said, with the additions I had made to the book, 
just when you get comfortable with something, it comes back. And the fact that it started with two people that were present in that book, of course, names were changed. There was one who did an interview with the family, dropping the boy's real name over live radio. Are, are uh, now, are these the uh, so-called paranormal investigators that you started the case with? Yes. No, no. Not the original, the original crew of people that I was brought in with. These were people that I brought in myself to help me. And they were wonderful people. And it's that, that, that fame glow, those sunglasses that get put on when you get a little touch of something. <laughs> There's a lot of that and, in this field, unfortunately, too. And that is what has happened. It, it, it's sickening because I tried to do something very selfless. And it come back where, you know, the one guy was doing an interview on the radio on my book. I wasn't even made aware of it. Uh, and was giving false information and saying, I saved this family from the depths of hell. Really? You know, uh, and then after that friendship had ended and I thought that was silly, I, uh, a, a man that came out of the woodwork that was a friend of mine during the case that I had cut off from afterwards just from his behavior, uh, he actually, after he worked with me, he was on the case for one day, he started giving lectures on being a demonologist. <laughs> and I kind of faced away from him after that. And all of a sudden, one day on, a, on, a, on an internet chat, he pops up, Cassie, how are you? And I said, what is it that you want? And he says, I have so much respect for you, and I care about you, and you're the only person in this field that I've ever listened to. You're the only person that really gets it. And I said, well, I'll give everybody, I'll give anybody a second chance. And I did. And uh, come to find out that the two, the two that had, had wronged me terribly were on conference calls with the family, planning documentaries. And, no, you're and kidding. He, wanted, he, was, he was writing his own book on the family's case, making me out to be a fraud. Is this that person that I know, too, that one we talked about before that I actually know? No. Okay. This is, this is a different young man, and he was writing his own book. And I said, God bless you. And he was actually trying to befriend me to get information on the case because he was only, he was only there for one day. And it was at that point that I had a blowout with the family, and it made me very sad. Uh, I actually had sent the family the royalty check, and I had wrote it out strictly to the boy because it was for him. He was the one who suffered through this. He was the one that deals with this every day. He's 17 years old, and he's brilliant. He's going to be a physicist. He, he is absolutely an amazing kid, and... I sent it to them. They sent it back to me with the word void across it. So I have started a bank account just for this boy. And when he reaches 21, he will get all the funding made from this book. They sent the money back? Yes. They said, we don't want your money. And I said, okay. It was very odd how this all transpired. And I, I remember there's a bishop that I work with. And I am not a Christian faith-based person. I am a free thinker. But I work with a man. And he was with me through the entire case. And I sat down with him and I said, Jim, I don't understand. I, I don't understand why this is happening. You know, I've been so selfless. And he said, my child, this is the perfect position. He says, don't you understand? And I said, he says, what you did was you rid this family of this thing, and now it's pissed. And basically what has been done, he says, did you ever realize that when you removed it, that it possibly may have went to somebody else? And I said, well, it was doing that. It had jumped several times, and he says, I know that. But time and space means nothing. And all of your information that you have spread to the world and all of your aid that you have done is trying to be taken from you. Your reputation that you have built, the people you have helped. And it made me realize that that is the major difference 
with evil and haunted. Uh, ghosts are ghosts. Ghosts are everywhere. And communication with them can sometimes be positive, negative, whatever. When you get into darker avenues, you never escape from it. And I have given lecture upon lecture, and it, it is something that's so important to try to get out there. And that was why it was so important to me to put out the second edition of this book. So was to, since last time we talked, the family did a complete 360 then, didn't they? They did. And I have been brutally honest through this entire thing, and they, they were actually angry. I was so upset over it, I said, that's it. I said, the book is going to be taken off the shelf. I'm going to contact my publisher, and it's gone. And they had actually written me a letter that said, why would you take it off the shelves? How dare you? And I thought, I, I went through about a month of my life where every spiritual book and object in my house was removed. You know, I went through that whole, why am I doing this? And may they all burn in hell stage, um, in reference to everybody. <laughs> and it was such a learning experience, and I'm so lucky to have experienced it. Because it has grown me into somebody I wasn't six months ago. It gave me a full understanding of so many things. And now I feel lucky to have gone through it. So with the second edition, I put a very large introduction into, you know, with the factors of, does anybody really know what evil is? You know, besides what you have on your TV shelves, what you snuggle up to with a bowl of popcorn. And, and you know, and in my reflection, I gave details like I did in the book. I was very honest about how things can come around full force. And it's, it's another step in helping people understand, please run from this. You want to go investigate a haunted house? Do it. Don't jump into something you don't understand. Do you think this thing's yeah. out to get you now? The way I explain it is imagine yourself in a dark room and you have a flashlight and you turn it on. You can see them and they can see you. And you can never, ever shut that flashlight off. And I know this, and I, oft, I often think it's humorous, like the life path that was chosen for me at uh, 30 years old. I have wrinkles, and I, you know, I never sleep, and I'm anxious. And I've had many people compliment me, you know, oh, you know so much. I know very little. I know nothing. I mean, every, anybody who's an expert on anything isn't an expert at all. And I feel very fortunate to go have seen the things that I've seen, to have experienced the things that I've experienced, and I've learned from everything, and I continue to learn. So that's why this edition was so important, was to show the full circle. It never goes away. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I mean, that's a good reason for a second edition, too. I wasn't sure at first, but, I mean, after listening to this, that's a, that's a very good reason for a second edition. Yeah, and what, there's also some general uh, fine-tuning, I think, that was done also. Mm -hmm. So people should be very pleased with that. Yeah, I, I actually, you know, I had sent out... When I wrote the reflection and I wrote the introduction, I was very aggravated and I let it go for about three weeks. And then I sat back down again and I erased everything and I started over. And I sent it to many of the people that are in my life that I'm lucky to have. They're very well off uh, authors. You know, they've done very well. And I said, guys, is this a little too much? Did I overdo it? And all of them came back with, you did it perfectly. And I had, I had one of my friends just clap and say, that's all I can do is clap for you. And uh, I think that it really is a learning tool. And I hope that it helps. You know, if somebody in their life, they don't understand what's happening. These things aren't a pan flying across the kitchen or a cabinet door slam. This is people dying. This is, this is death. This is suicide. This is hate. This is sickness. And mm. I just, I want people to understand this is not the avenue to pursue. Yeah, well, I, I always said, uh, you know, you see shows like Ghost Adventures and 
yeah. every place they go is supposedly infested with demons. And I've always said that if they really ever encountered an actual demon, they, I mean, they would be done with the show. They would you know? run. <laughs> well, not only that, but they, you know, we would start hearing a lot of strange things about them, like, you know, them going insane or, yes, you know, bodily injury, those kinds of things. And, you know, a lot of people, who knows how many people have come in contact with these things and suffered greatly from it. And I actually had somebody come out of the woodwork who is a very, very well-known uh, in the paranormal world, very, very intelligent, I think a lot of them. And he had wrote me an email, and he was in Peru, actually, and he was reading my book, and he says, Cassidy, he said, this is by far one of the best books that I've ever read. And he said, I can count on less than one hand for people that I've met all over the world that actually get it. He says, you get it. And it was so pleasing to me to hear that from somebody who I have so much respect for. And I've, I've, just, I've been very excited about the second one coming out. And actually, the original cover is black. And the second edition is white. And when Michael asked me, you know, why do you want it white? I said, because it's my reflection. It's, 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 the, it's the negative and it's the positive. It's the reflection. It's the opposite of what has transpired. And he thought that was a very good idea. So it will look a little different. Same cover, but white. Yeah, it'll it'll be very easy for people to distinguish between yeah, the two. It's actually a cool idea. Yeah, I, I thought it was neat, and I, I know people are very excited for it. And it's the same book, but it's it's different. It's, there's a lot to it. A lot has changed, and that was what was so, so important to put out into the world. Mm -hmm. I can't believe the family is like that now, because last time we talked, I mean, everything was fine, and they were thrilled, and wow, what, what a 360. That's just amazing. Well, even, and it, it strikes me, I mean, this isn't even like, when you think about, okay, what are the really well-known cases in the paranormal? The, you know, like you think about the Amityville horror, mm -hmm. this doesn't even come close to that in terms of renown. Right. And yet, so even this small amount of publicity has, has gone to everyone's heads. Yes. And, it's and incredible. I have been very lucky uh, to have an understanding of the schematics of fame. I have been very, I am so very thankful to understand the way things work. And there is nothing more important in life than your family, than your friends, than those around you, those you care about. And people lose sight of that. Fame and pride is... You know, I actually talk about, and the reflection, Michael, will tell you, that I see humanity falling into a very, very bad, cheap genetic failure. Because more and more, people don't need to find that inner strength inside themselves. They, they want that money. They want their face on TV. And they don't care what they have to do to get it. Well, and theologically speaking, uh, those are some of the, the deadly sins, right? Uh, vanity. You know, th those are ways in which... Uh, evil gets inside people and corrupts them. And it's not, you know, in, in the word demon, demon is so overused. Possession. Oh, you know. It's, it's a negative and a positive polarity in my aspect. It's up and down, yin and yang, right and wrong, day and night. It's all, it's all the same thing. And every religion and their outlook on it is just a different side of the story. It's just more glamour, more rules, more, more everything. But there is an up and there is a down. And there are ways to treat both of them. And I'm glad that I've come across that, but it's more and more people don't care about up or down. They don't care about interfaith. They don't, 
They don't care about it. Anything that gives them a little bit of that glow, those sunglasses, you know, that Hollywood aspect is so important. And I feel very badly for them because that is the kind of thing I spent so much time instilling so much in that family to make sure that this thing never come back. And they are doing nothing but filling that with something else. There's, there's an outside that, influence, you said. Somebody's there trying to talk about a documentary or something, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he says, well, I, we're friends now, so I won't do it. I said, good luck with the story. Good luck with your evidence. Uh, good luck. And, well, if and, if there's anything say. that I've found, I mean, I, I've been on a couple of those shows, you know, Ghost Adventures, uh, John and I were on WGN News with Bachelors Grove. Yeah. These these were things that I expected to be really big deals, and it turned out uh, that they just weren't. You know, I mean, it's one thing like people they, they get excited when they get on a national show. Like it, I was, I was really pumped to be on Ghost Adventures. I mm. thought it would like change my life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, naive. But then you're on, then you're actually on the show. And it's like nothing happens. Like your life does not change at all. And it's really a shame that people would be willing to throw away all the things that are important in their life just to get that, you know, that one little moment in the spotlight. There's a lot of that in the paranormal, too. It's just absolutely crazy. It's terrible. It is terrible. Everybody wants to have the next big thing. Everybody wants to be, you know, they all... I saw something on, on the internet the other day and I laughed. Uh, it was, you know, uh, paranormal, paranormal research or something, then and now. And it was then. It was read, study, evidence. Oh, read, study, oh, evidence. Yeah, yeah I saw that too. And then, it, and then there was the other one that said, form a team, get T-shirts, make car magnets. Yeah, exactly. You know, do a paranormal investigation. You know, form a new team, be more educated, maybe. You know, <laughs> and it was so funny to me because it's exactly – you know how things are you know if you have the best spray on tan or <laughs> you have you know the biggest breasts you're you're gonna go far in this business you got to get the fancy it. name the fancy t-shirts and the fancy yeah. hats and that's all it takes no, no, I don't, fancy I, pants right i have never had <laughs> yeah. a t-shirt for any team i have never i i have never found it important i i've never had my name on anything they made me postcards the first book that i put out the history press had made publicity postcards to send to people that you knew i thought that was the greatest thing oh that's a good idea <laughs> oh yeah and it, it they were beautiful and i thought i was awesome and i still have 90% of them i'm like i have to hold on to these they're not <laughs> sitting in my desk and there they sit and you know and that was the only thing that was ever and i don't i don't do that i don't think that way and i'm very thankful to understand that I've worked for TV. I have worked for the networks and I've been fired for being too smart. <laughs> I was an intelligent woman in authority position. They couldn't have it. So it's, it's like if I ever, you know, do something on television, it's going to be to teach and that's it. No, they don't like that. It's not for entertainment. I actually worked with a, uh, a psychic once and I was speaking to a group. I was supposed to be the expert and they were talking about orbs and I told them the scientific explanation for orbs. And I went into depth, the real thing. And after that, I actually got pulled to the side and yelled at because I wasn't supposed to say that. I was supposed to say that, you know, that orb is your great-great-grandma or something. <laughs> I was actually emailed the other day from a girl I went to school with out of the blue. And she, she's a very nice girl. And she says, Cassidy, I uploaded this application to my iPhone. <laughs> and I said... 
Uh-huh. And she said, it was talking to my son. It gives words, kind of like an obvious kind of thing. It was just delivering words that were specific to us, and it was specific, specific to me. And it was this and that. And she says, it was really amazing. I don't understand. Are those things real? And I said, well, the hardware inside of an iPhone is not capable or doesn't work the way that this equipment does. I said, it's an application. I said, even if it worked off, the, the rumor is magnetic frequency or whatever. I said, there's, there's nothing in the phone that could do that. I said, but... I said, there's also the aspect of communication that Spirit has had through telephones, through the, f- the famous Frank's box. Um, I've had things, ha- I mean, thus with our communication here, the last interview, you were hearing somebody <laughs> chattering on in the background. Then, of course, you go to listen to it, it all deletes itself. <laughs> it, and I, so I said to her, I said, so you have to actually look into it yourself. Was that something communicating and using that? Or was it an application that was spitting out really lucky words? I said, it could be looked at in two different ways. I said, I highly doubt it was coming from the program. If you did have something that was speaking your son's name and was talking to you, I said, then, then maybe they were using the device. I said, but the application is just an application. Exactly. I was just going to say the same thing, like- too. It, it probably wasn't the app, but it could have been something actually using the phone. That's what I tried to explain to her, and she says, oh, I never thought about it. I said, well, you know, people pick on the Frank's box. And I said, but I've had some really odd experiences with those, and I have one, and I know Frank, and he's actually building video boxes now. Oh, that's cool. Which was, which was a dream that I'd had, and I called him, and I said, Frank, I had a dream. You, <laughs> you made a Frank's box with a TV on it. He says, no, tried that, doesn't work. Well, then he got thinking about it. And he created the first video box. And there's one in the world, and he's working on number two. Is it like that? What was it? Uh, what was the movie with the little girl? They're back. What? Oh, yeah, Poltergeist. <laughs> yeah, Poltergeist, that's it. <laughs> he's pulled some very interesting images off of it. And I actually gave him the idea. I said, you know those old, I can't even remember what they're called. I have like four of them in the estate that we own. The cameras that, that take the pictures, the very old cameras in, uh, what do you? Uh, oh, the Polaroids? Not Polaroids. Der- they're derogatype or they're from like the fifties. Oh, okay. uh, they take them in slides. I told him that you need to set up a box, a vid box, in front of those, and it takes it in slides, and there would be no altering. There would be no digital matrixing because it would take exactly what was in front of it, and it would be interesting to see using that kind of equipment what they could actually get out of it. So hopefully, he says he doesn't have one. I may send him one because I have four. <laughs> Uh, and the stands, I thought that was very interesting kind of research. And it's, it's funny because, you know, what the Frank's boxes do is they skip radio waves. But I have got some really odd things come through. And even an example, the boy will be sick today. You better wait for the phone call. He doesn't feel well. 30 seconds later, my phone rang and my son was sick at school. Okay, now that's uncanny. They, that's not just, that's not a coincidence. Right. right. And I mean, is it the radio waves? Of course not. Is it something using it as a tool? I think so. Now, the night before I met Michael Clean, and I was going to self-publish this book, Diaries of the Dark Side. It warned you of an evil Frank presence? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, uh, I had a dog uh-huh. in my office. And I, <laughs> I was mulling around. And I got an email from Frank, and it was, a, it was a sound clip. And I opened it, and it says, Cassidy, this has got to be for you. You're one of the only writers I know. 
and I, I just think this is for you. And it said something along the lines of, this is so important. You must take the knowledge and take it to the publisher. And I said, Frankie, it's not for me. I said, I don't have a publisher. I'm going to self-publish. Well, it happens to be the next day Mike picked me up as a publisher. Hmm. So when it comes to paranormal junk, I believe they absolutely can work. I've had phone calls from people who are dead. One in particular, the night my grandmother died, my uncle had called. So I know that they can use electrical devices. So, you know, it's interesting. Off topic, but interesting. That's not really off topic. I mean, that's a plus of those phone call things. That's been going on for ages. I think since phones are made, they started having things like that happen. And, you know, it, I work with this stuff all the time. I work with it. I work with it all the time. I'm very available to it. But when it, it hits home and it happens in your own life, it shifts your whole perspective. Uh, my grandmother was very close to me. I, I loved her. I, I love her to this day. I will love her till the day I die. She will still be one of the most important people that ever were part of my life. And she was very, very healthy, even at 87. And I was working. I bartended on the side, and I was at work one night, and my phone had rang from my grandmother's phone number. And it was 10, 10 minutes past nine. I remember this distinctly. And she never called after nine. She went up to bed at 8.30. That was her thing. And I picked up the phone and there was silence. And I said, hello. And then all of a sudden I hear my Uncle Mike's voice. Cass, are you there? Cass, it's Uncle Mike. Can you hear me? I said, uh-huh. You know, it was, my uncle had died nine months before this. And she had never got over it. And he says, Cass, can you hear me? It's Uncle Mike. And it faded out. And I remember taking the phone away from my face, and my, my friend was standing next to me, and she says, are you all right? And I said, I think so. And I hung the phone up, and I called back, and my grandmother picked up. And I said, did you just call me? And she says, no. And the phone's right next to me. I'm sitting up here reading. And those were those old, heavy, you know, the rotary phones. Right. Uh, she, that's all she had in her house. And I said, you didn't call me? And she says, no, I didn't. And I said, okay, Grandma, I love you. And I hung up, and she died in her sleep that night. So I know, and I will certainly stand by the fact that they can use that to communicate. I think there's some kind of cat trying to communicate. <laughs> I heard it. It's, it's outside. <laughs> I, I wanted to uh, transition the conversation away from the book very briefly and talk about some of your experiences in Western New York there. Now, I, I know you've, you've written, uh, co-wrote that book on Haunted Buffalo. So I was kind of curious, what is your favorite haunted place over there in western New York. Hold on a second, guys. <laughs> I hear a haunted cat. <laughs> no, no, sorry. Okay. All right, we'll go back to that. When it comes to western New York, it really is one of the coolest places to live, you know, supernatural-wise. We live right in the heart of the Enchanted Mountains. Um, a lot of Native American folklore around the area, which is amazing in itself. And... You know, of course, the city of Buffalo, the city of Rochester, it's, it's all amazing. And when I wrote Haunted Buffalo, I think, of course, my favorite location is the H.H. Richardson Complex. And it's also the Buffalo Insane Asylum. Uh, it's one of the most beautiful buildings that today still stands in Buffalo. It's very badly dilapidated, but it does have a complex committee that has been restoring it. And I was actually given a, a private tour and I was able to actually walk through the building, and it was amazing. Um, so this is actually in Buffalo itself, the, yes. the city? Yep, it sits on Forest Avenue, and you can see the Twin Towers miles away. It's, it's, gi it's gigantic. When, you, when, you, when you're standing up next to it, it's, it's just jaw-dropping. And 
when it, another one of the bigger sites that I really liked was actually the USS the Sullivans, which is a boat. And it sits in the naval park. And, you know, it was always rumored, oh, it's haunted by the Sullivan brothers. What had happened was five brothers from um, Iowa, I think, they had all banded together and joined the Navy. And they all actually were on the same ship. Well, the ship went down in, 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 in an instance, not the Sullivan, and all of the brothers passed. And they were actually aboard the USS Adunio. And so they had named this ship the Sullivans, after the brothers. And it was always said that they, that the, the one older brother had haunted the ship, and la, la, la. And I always found that intriguing because I'm Irish, and there's a big clover that they've, they've painted on there, and, you know, in memoriam of the brothers. And when I was able, when I was given a tour of the ship, because these sit um, open for tours in the naval park, and there was definitely a young gentleman walking around that ship but it certainly wasn't one of those brothers. And I always was intrigued with that. That kind of showed me, you know, it's not just a house or a building, you know, boats, anything can be haunted. Anything can have an attachment to it. Exactly. Actually, I've said that before, that you can go down, down to your favorite mall and the mall could be haunted. People think it just mm -hmm. seems to be graveyards, but it could be anywhere. Oh, graveyards. Oh, yeah. they're, they're actually uh, over by where I live in Rockford. There's a Cherryvale Mall, and there have been some weird stories about that. Uh, people like have reported being trapped in the storage rooms, uh, like employees after hours. Uh, and there was also an incident where somebody, th this isn't paranormal, but somebody uh, lit bags on fire and was throwing them down into the crowd. Wow. <laughs> so a lot of weird things happened there. Well, that's right, you know, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, even like up here, there's there's a certain tree and they've created a whole park around it. And it was a torture tree that the native Americans used on soldiers when they, when they got a hold of them and they had forced these men to walk around them with their intestines nailed to the tree, which is gruesome. But that tree is still standing very healthy, very big. And that tree itself has so much energy around it and it doesn't matter where you are. And I think that's why I liked the ship so much because it was so active yet Here's this vessel floating in the water that has, you know, and I've, and I've done a lot of studies on, on objects, too, and, and different, you know, I've actually used a World War II bayonet and placed it in the same box with a, a Nazi bayonet to see. <laughs> to see if, if they fight. The yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, because there's so much emotion tied to both pieces. I mean, as comical as, as, and grotesque as that sounds, there is so much emotion. Well, actually, tell, tell us about, I mean, without naming names, I, I remember when I first met you, you had done some exper experiment on this uh, so-called psychic. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I actually wrote about that in great length in that book. And I did, I did protect the names. And because it's the fact, you have to be so careful. And whether you like somebody or not, you know, it's kind of one of those long life lessons. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And I did change the, the names, but it was so important for me to get out there because it shows how plastic people are. Well, tell, tell us what happened. When I met this couple and I worked with them, I had all the faith. Oh, my goodness. The faith in these people. I trusted them. I trusted what they told me. And when I 
when I started to realize that uh, there's a lot of baloney, we were, they were trying to pull me into this paranormal TV reel because they wanted to be on TV. And I really, I had no need to. I didn't, I didn't want to do that. And they talked me into it. Please do it for us. One of the things they wanted to do as an example of, of their abilities was a cold read. And I have, I am the collector of oddities. I have, I collect books. I collect objects. I, my house, my husband has put up with me for years. I have many things. And one of the things I had was a, a Nazi piece, and it was a bayonet, and it was, it was a, it was a youth knife. And I had known the story very well as handed down from my grandfather for that was one of the pieces that he had returned home with after World War II. So I knew, I knew exactly what had happened. And so I, of course, I, I, you know, a little facetious and I decided to give the husband of this woman a fake story. Hmm. I talked, Oh, I made it up, you know? And he says, of course I won't tell her. And, you know, he handed it to her in a, in a towel. And she, they had me over and, and they were very excited to show me the reel. And when I watched it, it was the exact story I had fed her husband. <laughs> and it, it was a very, there was a very strong, there were several attachments to this piece. I mean, if you think about what this piece was, it, it, it's a gruesome past, very sad past. And my, the reason I ended up with it was my grandmother feared it. Uh, I found it originally in the towel cabinet in the back of my, mother, my grandmother's bathroom. I said, Grandma, what's this? Oh, I just, I just put it there, and it was stuffed between towels. <laughs> so <laughs> That's a good place so, for it. That's where you normally keep your daggers. You know, <laughs> you're, you're, you know your Nazi memorabilia. Yeah. Uh, and I asked her if I could use it for research, and she said yes. And when I had originally tried to return it to her, she says, I, I, I don't want it. And it's because the thing would, if you had it in a cabinet, it would vibrate. And you'd open it up, and there, all that would be in there was that knife. So I understood you know, a while later, why she had it in the towels, because she wouldn't be able to hear it. So now where it sits in a safety deposit box in the bank, it's wrapped heavily in a towel. <laughs> it vibrates, it, though, it, huh? That's weird. It, it does. It, it actually will, like, shake itself into in a drawer until you open it, and then, of course, there's nothing. So. Oh, that's cool. Do you ever put cameras on it? I'm an investigator, true heart. That's the first thing I think of, putting it on the ground and putting cameras on it. I haven't yet. Um, I've thought about it. I, you know, after, after the cold read was done on it, I actually, I actually placed it on top of a record player and uh, played Moonlit Sonata over and over again. I don't know why it, it, it chose to do it, and it really quieted it down. <laughs> and I haven't put a camera on it yet. Like singing I, a lullaby? <laughs> I, I kind of, I feel like it was given to me to do this. But I put it away, and it's, like I said, it's in the safety deposit box, and... When I choose to do another object study, I will do it with that piece. But uh, I've kind of put that aside. I'll tell you, when I get out your way this summer, I'm going to bring my infrared camera equipment, too. We'll put an infrared camera and film it and see if we catch anything. I would love that. That would be be cool because uh, it would be kind of shocking to find out that it's not shaking and there's actually a hand shaking it. There's there is something with it, and I've I've heard it bang several times, and now it is wrapped heavily in a towel. It it, it has spooked my husband uh, because my husband really has learned to grow with me. We've been together for ten years, and uh, 
it took a lot of getting used to. And we, we've, we've gone over a lot of humps to get where we are. And I talk about that in the book because it's, it's, it's interesting living with somebody that does what I do for, you're for just life. a normal wife. You've got a dancing dagger and, you know, all the normal things that normal people have. Now he says, my wife talks to dead people. Isn't that awesome? Like he, <laughs> he's totally been uh, all right with it. He, he understands it. And, you know, certain things, when I have come out with things and said how important certain things are, he completely, without a doubt, will back me up till the end of time. So it's, 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 it's nice to have somebody that you can grow with. So are, are you finished with paranormal investigation now? I don't think you ever I finished don't have with that. Time. <laughs> uh, it's become such a circus. The fact of going in to help people and actually doing the research and doing hours and hours and hours of listening through recordings and looking at videos and drinking coffee, those days are over. Yeah. The days that people research properties, research deeds and, and you know, I have found very few people in this in this area that are legitimate. I have one, Toni Morris, and she has impressed me with the fact that everything she does, she does for charity. And she, you know, researches these things. And she'll say, oh, I got to find the deed on this place. And she's working with it. And that is gone. That yeah. is no longer. I mean, the fact that these teams, they all have their matching T-shirts. I think that's ridiculous. <laughs> Um, well, I, I found that to be the case with a lot of uh, old timers. I mean, of course, you, you've got the staple paranormal celebrities, as I call them. But I think for a lot of people, I mean, I I had done paranormal investigation for a while when I was a lot younger, and Did I got tired of it. No, <laughs> uh, no, unfortunately not. See, but that's I mean, why it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. and the car magnet I I got tired of the whole thing around the same time that it suddenly became popular so when I had everybody wanting me to join their paranormal teams I was like I already had had enough of it you know and I didn't want any part of it anymore I think that certain people get burned out on it and I think that people who legitimately do the hard work the research the hours and hours of time into it it, it, it gets hard on you, you know, if you have a personal life, if you have children, if you're married. Very, very difficult to keep up with. And I am not downing, because I do know a few people on that are paranormal celebrities, and I think a hell of a lot of them. You know, but they're most of them. I was going to say, are, people have no idea how involved it is. I mean, just to go through uh, photos you take, pictures, thousands of pictures, I mean, it takes day after day after day after week. I mean, it's an insane amount of time it takes to go through this stuff. And that's not even, that's just the investigation. The, the you know, the, the, the work you have to do before you even go in. I mean, if there's something on the property, my whole thing was, why is it there? Who is there? What is causing this? You know, what has happened? And either it's an object in the house or it's stuck to a person or it's stuck to the land itself but you have to go back through before that house was there before this you have to go into the native american footpaths i mean you have to go back in time and figure out what has transpired to cause this to happen and people are too lazy no there's they don't like doing that part there's no fame in there they just want to do right. the current stuff but you got to go back in the history find out what happened like you said way way back of Something caused it. Generally, things just don't happen for no reason. There's always something somewhere that triggered it. So now, uh, nobody cares. So, Cass, 
Is there something that you would like to add? Is there something that we didn't cover that you would like to say about the new edition of Diaries of the Dark Side? When it comes to the new edition, like I said, I'm very, very grateful that it's being put out. I, it was really my way of showing the full circle of things and how things come back to haunt you. They never let you go. And it is the major difference between paranormal and evil or the negative or the dark. And people out there in the world that watch the shows that, that, that you know, that read, that read a couple of fan books or they need to understand. Run. Run from it. Remove yourself from it. If anything ever appears that way, I mean, it's not as common. You know, everybody says, oh, there's a possession. Oh, this is evil. Oh, there's a demon here. There's a demon here. <laughs> it's not, it's not, you, you can have a, an assault from a spirit who is a nasty person. If they're nasty in life, if they're carried over, and they even know that they're dead, they're going to be nasty in death. Exactly. And that's, that's not a demon. That's just a jerk. <laughs> jerk in life, jerk in death. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's, you know, and I've come across serial killers, uh, a serial rapist that I came in contact with once. Same thing. I mean, they were who they were, and that soul is still there. And people need to realize not everything is a demon. And there are cases all over the country, and more and more of these exorcisms are failing. And, and you know, they keep training all these exorcists and because they're not realizing the real problem. And, you know, you need these paranormal groups, if I can say anything at all, if something doesn't look right, remove yourself from it. If you have children, if you have a family, pets, if you value your life, stay away from it because well, it will never They're mean be. and they're vengeful and they will attach to you, especially if you take away their fun. If you destroy what they're doing to a family, they're going to attach to you and be with you forever. And they do. And it, 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 it's, it's like the flashlight theory that I have. They know where you are. And I have suffered greatly from the work that I have done. And I would do it again. I would absolutely do it again. But when it comes down to the fact that I will no longer have any more children or that I have to watch every step that I take because I have to be so careful and protect what I have, this is not the life that people want. They think this is glorious. They think this is this is a, a neat thing, you know. They think of Constantine or they think of a man flailing through a, dare, a door with a cross, you know. I'll get you. It, it's not like that. So and if... You understand. So if, I'm... Oh, so if you could go back in time and talk to yourself when you first set foot on that property, what would you say to yourself? You know, I wouldn't say a thing because <laughs> everything that I've done and, and gone through, I am very young, Mike, and people still to this day look at me and they go, you're nothing but a little kid. And everything that I've done, every step that I've ever taken, every every triumph and every feat has taught me so much, not only about myself, but the universe around me. I wouldn't have said a thing because if I hadn't have gone through everything in my life that I've gone through, if I hadn't seen everything that I've seen, if I hadn't experienced it, felt it, uh, been damaged or, you know, like I said, triumphed from it, I wouldn't be who I am. And Hopefully the product that I have become and am still becoming and learning every day, I, this is, I am no longer the know-it-all who says, I, am, I know everything. <laughs> I know nothing. 
And if I hadn't had experienced the things that I have gone through, I would still have that mentality. I wouldn't have been beaten down in the school of hard knocks. I said, hey, you better realize what's going on here. So I wouldn't change a thing. I would never go back. And everything that's happened to me, I think that it was all meant for me to learn. Yeah, des- a thing. Destiny. Sometimes it's just laid out there and there's nothing you can do. I know. <laughs> I would love to be, you know, I'd often had said, I have a character in a, in a, a fictional book that I'm writing and, and I, she's based on myself. And in the book I say, there are many times that she thought about, you know, the, the factory down in town, the 40 hour work week, and they come home to their reality shows and they have a beer hmm. and that's their life. And she had often wished the ignorance had fell upon her. And there are days that I thought, you know, I don't want to do this. Why am I doing this? Why do I help all these people? Why, why do I waste my time and my money when, you know, they turn around and they do, they do nasty things to me? It's because I'm supposed to do it. I, I'm, I'm meant to do it. It's, it's, it's what I'm supposed to be doing. I think I've done it in past lives because I do believe in it. And I think that no matter how hard I try, and I've tried to walk away from it before, and it just comes right back around. Oh, so, it gets a hold. You can sometimes kind of get away, but it always comes back to you. I can't get away from it for more than a month or two, and it's, it's, it's right back. There's a child that is having problems, or there's a family, or there's something, and I can't say no to it. And I, to this day, I often said to myself, what will I do the day that I get the phone call that that thing had come back? That's what I was just going to ask you that. Now that this family is actually kind of giving you the cold shoulder, and idiots are involved in their family again, trying to make a buck and all this. Do you think this thing might come back now? I've often sat down over a cup of coffee and and, and thought very heavily. About because it. to me, I, angry, I, said, I think the writing's on the wall, unfortunately, because the signs, what's going on, something has turned them against you and something's going on, which, if you ask me, is a little bit of a sign of evil popping its head up again. It Yeah, and it, it's, it's influences from them. It's, it's influences... From other people, and like I said, it's a full circle thing. This this is a perfect possession. And you know, I often said I got I had that angry month where I I slept very little and I was very anxious and I suffered from chest pains and I had to go and and get treated for anxiety over this. And and then finally I said, oh, I'll never help them again. I'll never let them help. I'll I'll I'll, I'll let them go. And after this learning experience, if this thing were to come back and I were to get that phone call, you'd go I right would back, anything. wouldn't you? I would help them again. And I I don't know why, but that that young man that this that has suffered from this, I think that he will be fine. He almost has an animal instinct with it now. He understands. And I spent a long time instilling that. But I think that if I ever got the phone call after a few months of reflection, I would go back. I would I would help them again. I, do I have any... There, there's so feelings. many stories of people being repossessed, though. That's what's scary. And, you know, people think that once you clear something, oh, it's dead, you know. You can you kill a demon? No, you can't. You just remove them. You pack their bags and you send them somewhere else. And I think if it, if it were to come back, I, I think that I know how to handle this this particular, and I know... And I probably would suffer greatly. And even in, in redoing this book and writing the reflection, I had health problems again. Same ones. Same one. Mm-hmm. With no medical diagnosis. It never leaves. And I will fight this for the rest of my life. But I would do anything for that young man. Anything. Well, our guest is uh, Cassidy O'Connor. The book is Diaries of the Dark Side, second edition. And is there anything else, uh, John, you wanted to ask? 
You're such a professional co-host, Mike. <laughs> you're, 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 Cassie and I are just talking, having a good time, and Mr. Serious comes in. Well, our time's <laughs> almost up. Anything else you want to say? <laughs> well, someone's got to keep yeah. the structure. No, what I was going to say is, uh, to be honest, I'd be afraid that thing's going to come back. I'm afraid the writing's on the wall. Whether it is on the wall or whether it isn't, it, it's, it's something that once you get it, it's there. Right. And that young man is so strong and he's brilliant. He is, he's very smart and he's very ahead of his years and he will be fine. That's good. Whether the others in his family will be, I don't know. Do I feel someday I may get a phone call? Probably. And I'll have to handle it the way that I handle it. But the truth of the matter is whether it's them being very, very small people with those fame sunglasses or whether this thing has come back and said, ha, 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 I'm going to ruin you. I'll keep going. I'll keep fighting it. Well, that's a scary phone call you hope you never get. If I get it, I get it. It's to the point now where I've battled that particular set for so long that I'm prepared to do it again. Well, that was uh, really interesting. I actually wasn't expecting that this time. Uh, uh, quite a switcheroo. I just I can't believe those people uh, don't like you anymore. But what can you say? I, I wasn't expecting that whatsoever. I knew you had a new book, that's what Mike said, but I wasn't expecting this version to be telling this side of the story well, i, I always get thing. the good guests yeah, yeah. It, it's a good thing though it, it is because it shows so much and it shows a full turnaround and that actually completes you know kind of the moral of the story it really does and it, it and it shows and after like i said months of reflection i'm grateful for it definitely well you want to give out the web information again mike on where they can get her book which they definitely want to read oh yeah uh, the book is diaries of the dark side it's available on barnesandnoble.com and amazon.com, of course, and for Nook and Kindle very soon. Yes, okay. and I when I don't know the the new edition is coming out within a few days, I believe, right? Yes, uh, they they should be able to order the hard copy uh, now on Amazon okay. and barnesandnoble.com, uh, but the Nook and Kindle version are going to be released very soon. Well, that was great, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again then. Yeah, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. Lastly, we have Kathy Kressel, a paranormal expert in Rockford, Illinois. She will be sharing some of her scary stories with us. Welcome back. With us right now is Mike O'Clean and his friend Kathy Kressel from Haunted Rockford Tour. So how are you guys doing today? Oh, I'm doing great, John. Thanks for having me on once again. And it's quite a pleasure to have Kathy with us today. She is the paranormal guru of Rockford, uh, which for those of our listeners who don't know, is a city kind of in the middle of the northernmost part of the state. Yeah, so there's uh, a lot of history here and a lot of paranormal goings on. And Kathy, thankfully, has joined us to share some of that. 
Yes, uh, Kathy, it's great that you can be with us. How are you doing uh, this evening? I'm great. How are you guys? Oh, doing, we are wonderful. Doing real uh, good. Well, speak for yourself. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing good, too, though. Yeah. So we're going to start out by kind of introducing you to our listeners and asking you uh, kind of how you got interested in the paranormal to begin with and how you started doing haunted tours in Rockford. I started about um, seven years ago. Um, I originally started telling ghost stories to my children. I homeschooled my um, three girls all the way through high school, and I would use the ghost stories as part of our history lesson. So yeah. that's how that all started. That, that would be great um, if more history teachers use that approach. Oh, yeah. I, I really was, appreciate that. Yeah, it's because you're, you love history. so, um, And I wanted to give them the more personal touch of it. And so I would tell the ghost stories. And we would go. We've been all over the country visiting places in North Carolina and Gettysburg and um, Philadelphia and uh, places like that. And I would tell them the story. And then we would go and you know, try to scare them a little bit, too. So that was they liked it. They responded well. And um, then um, my daughters were part of the young adult board for the Rockford Public Library. And um, I was working in, um, as a librarian assistant. And they we were talking about some programs one day. And they said, I should do that for the library. So I went to my boss and they said, you know, I do this thing with my kids. And they were thinking we should do it to, for Rockford. So my boss says, OK, try it. So I got a hold of the Rockford uh, Transit Authority. And um, we arranged a bus. They got a sponsor for me and we uh, put it together and the bus filled in like two days. So we opened another bus. So it, it's worked out wonderfully and it's grown ever since and it's exciting. I love doing it. Yeah. And it's amazing how it seems like there's, it's just packed every year and you're able to find new places every year. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, every season I go to uh, different places and um, I love the research part of it. That's what makes it interesting. And you as a history buff know that. I um, have these wonderful gurus uh, at the library in the local history room, Janet uh, Carter and Jean Lithgow, and they help me out. And help. And sometimes they're researching other things and they come across these weird little bits of history that I use um, in part of my tours uh, as stories too. So it works out really well. I, I mean, I have a wonderful resource right at my fingertips. Well, Rockford's, I've never been there myself, actually, but it's an older area with a lot of history, isn't it? That's correct. Um, it, it is, um, and it was settled by the basically you know, a bunch of Swedish people came here as immigrants, and so they've kept track of of things and um, and their ancestors, and so we've been able to you know keep that current and and um, work on the history part of it. So it's been really interesting, and um, you know when you have people, they die, and then I tell the stories. It works out great. <laughs> yeah, it tends to work that way throughout of all the history, actually. <laughs> <laughs> people people are born, then they die. What are some of your favorite stories that you tell on the tour? Um, like you said, every year it's different. I recycle some of my old favorite ones, though, because a lot of people request them, too. Um, there's a house on First Street downtown that belonged to a lady named Emma Jones and her husband. And um, Emma lived there before it got so congested downtown. And her house sits up on a hill. It's a wonderful old house. And uh, she... Her and her husband lived there. They had some dogs, and um, her husband worked for a transportation company, so he would travel. And the story goes that she would sit in her top little window up there and watch the boats come in, and she so she would know when he was going to be home. Her and her dogs would wait for him, and um, so they they spent their life there. And and uh, then as they got older, Frank passed away, and Emma missed him, of course, and her dogs. And uh, her dogs got older too, and then 
they passed away. And then it seems like Emma slipped into some dementia and um, her family had to unfortunately remove her from the home and they put her in a nursing home. But Emma was still determined she loved that house. And so she would sometimes make her way out of the nursing home and walk back to that house. So the neighbors would see her trying to get in and they would call and the nursing home would come in and pick her back up and um, take her back to their, her new home. Um, after a while, the family couldn't afford both. And so they sold, had to put the house up for market and um, realtor goes to show the house and lo and behold, there's no electricity. So he has to leave the, the new couple in the living room and he runs downstairs to the box to see what's going on with the electricity. And of course, it's dark, so he has to light a match. And as he lights a match, he sees a little old lady standing in front of him and then the match goes out. So he lights another match to see where she is and she's not there. So he gets the lights on and of course he doesn't say anything to the unsuspecting couple upstairs. Being a good real estate agent, he doesn't say a word, right? (laughs) Right, he doesn't say a word and so he goes upstairs and they love the house so they end up buying the house. I mean, they were living their life, you know, and they noticed a few odd things. They heard footsteps sometimes, there was knocking on the walls and then one day they came in to the living room and there's a lady standing there and she asks them what are you doing in my house and they just both kind of turn to each other and look and she just slowly walks out the front door and so they were talking to the neighbors about it and they said oh that must be emma she probably got out of the nursing home again so this couple wanted to check up on the lady so they call the nursing home and the people in the nursing home tell them that emma had actually passed away so they get a little freaked out and it's time to move on and the house gets um sold to uh a business and they make business offices in there, and it was for the Meld Company, and uh, which helps the young mothers, uh, young teen mothers. So uh, they had to re- do a little bit of redecorating to get the house from uh, residential to commercial. And when they were working on the house, the workers would um, go outside to smoke cigarettes, and when they tried to get back in the house, the door would be locked, and tools would be missing. And so I don't think Emma was really excited about what they were doing on their house. They also said that every time the ladies in the office would bring goodies to eat, and sometimes there would be like a chunk of cake taken right out of the middle. So they actually, when they started bringing the, the treats, they actually decided to start just giving Emma a piece so she would stop demolishing their, their cake. So, okay. I've never um, heard, I've actually never heard that before, ghost eating your treats. Right. Yeah, she had a little bit of a sweet tooth. Right. Um, so people say that they still see Emma. Um, and one of the, the best stories, I love um, a part of that story, is one of the ladies was actually leaving in the parking lot is kind of toward the back of the house. So she drove out of the parking lot and then towards the front of the house. And as she was passing the front of the house, they have a um, couple of old doors and you can see, you know, through the window and uh, there's a staircase. And she saw a little old lady standing on that staircase. So that one always gives me the goose pimples. And um, the first time we were going to go there, I was... uh, teaching a totally entirely different class at the library and uh, was teaching teens something about babysitting. And I was telling them, you know, to get them excited about what we had upcoming for teens. I was telling them about this ghost tour. And I just happened to mention Emma's house on First Street. And one of the little girls raised her hand and said, that's my house. <laughs> Uh-oh. And I was like, oh, <laughs> so now I have to call the parents because I can't just, you know, if the girl just heard their house was haunted by, you know, me. Right. So I, 
I called the house and I talked to the parents and, and they didn't really want us to come in, but they didn't mind us being, you know, coming out their house. And I said, well, I'm going to show up with the tour. So, you know, I call them up and I show up with 60 people coming out of the bus. And when we got out of the bus, the little girl had taken it upon herself to dress herself in a white gown. And she was sitting up in that window. And I stood out of the, I guess, stepped off the bus and I look up at that window and I'm like, oh my gosh, are you seeing this? And the people were just like, you know, in shock. And then she kind of waved. I'm like, oh, it's right. <laughs> Oh, that's great. (laughs) So I kind of, you know, kind of, everybody kind of chuckled. And then uh, as we were standing in front of their house with, you know, these 16 people, she has a little brother and he was playing peekaboo in the window. So he'd open the curtain and stick his face on, you know, at the window and then he'd pull it back real quick. And um, and I'm wondering what's going on behind me because, of course, I'm not, the the crowd is facing there and I I get these chuckles and I'm like, I haven't said anything funny yet. So um, I was wondering what was going on and I turn around and there's this little guy, you know, standing and waving. I was like, that's not Emma. That's not her. <laughs> That's so. so. While you're facing your audience, he's actually putting on a little show for him. Yeah, much more entertaining than I am, I guess, because they were paying more attention to that one. So. Well, one of my favorite stories from the tour was the one where they discovered that woman's body in the garden. Uh, can you tell us oh, a little the bit about that? Oh, the Myra Penfield story, yeah. Um, that's one of my favorites, too. I usually tell that toward the end of the tour because I like, you know, by then it's dark, and I like to get everybody just a little creeped out before I take them back. So It's, um, it's very creepy. It's a good one. Um, there was a, a house built, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's considered in Hate Village proper, um, downtown. It's one of the, the old historic um, uh, sections of our town. There were two, actually, there were kind of two Rockford that, that start one side of the river, then the other side of the river, and this is on the east side of the river when it the first settlement and um there was a big mansion there and the mansion before it was bought by the couple i'm going to talk about had already had a history a bad history um there was a fire the original owners had a fire in the house and two of their children were killed and a servant who had gone back in to try to save the children who were consumed by the fire and um then it sold to a man who was an undertaker in town and he he had a, a, a wife he was adored unfortunately she liked to uh get in her cups as they say, and she was a heavy drinker and apparently couldn't walk down the stairs very well, and she fell down and broke her neck. And he was so um, torn up by this, he actually hung himself in the big garden. They had a big maple tree in the garden, and uh, he hung himself from there. So oh, that, the house that's a had, part of the story that I, I didn't know about. I, uh, you know, sometimes I can dig farther and find out new little details, like and throw them in there. Well, half of Mike's so, story's always got a hanging in them too. That's kind of a running <laughs> joke on this show. A lot of his top ten list, everyone seems to hang themselves. Right. Well, that's um, a very dramatic way to go. Yes. It is. Anyway, um, story starts where this uh, this man um, owned a jewelry store in town, and he decided it was time for his son to get married. And he was from um, England, and so he decided he wanted to bring a girl, have his have his son marry this English girl. So they part across the water, and, and they find this, this young lady. Her name was Mara, and uh, she's about 17 at this time. And they decide, her family decides that, you know, they don't want her that far away, but this sounds like a good match. She owns a jewelry stores, so he's probably going to be well-to-do. They've got a beautiful mansion they're moving in. So they send their daughter off, you know, hoping the best and, and expecting her to have a wonderful life. She gets over here, and at first it goes well. She had a beautiful mansion, great garden. Um, things go well between her and uh, Mr. Penfield Llewellyn, Jr., and um, he, uh, so he, they're, they're happy in their wedding bliss there. But his father has to move in, uh, Penfield Sr., and um, he is uh, likes to drink a lot. And um, after a while, Junior starts joining him in the drinking. And for some reason, Myra gets on his nerves. And so he doesn't like her. And so he starts, you know, just really 
not being nice to her. He treats her disrespectfully and he says mean things to her and kind of verbally abuses her. And before long, the son is joining in on this because he's starting to see Mara through his dad's eyes and it's it's not a good thing. And she's young. She doesn't know anybody here. She's made some friends in the neighborhood, but she spends a lot of time alone in the garden to try to get away from what's going on in the house. And um, neighbors started noticing spending time with her gardener a little bit more. He's a young man. And so then they think that there's this romance that's growing between the two of them and they start talking and and it gets back to Penfield Sr. And he doesn't like that at all, of course. So he, um, the neighbors watch this develop between Mara and the gardener and they start saying that Mara's going to run away with him. And uh, before long, lo and behold, Mara's gone. Mm -hmm. And they're thinking that she's gone off somewhere and is living a life with somebody who really loves her and cares for her. So the years pass and they notice Llewellyn Jr. starts to go a little mad and uh, they have to put him away in a sanitarium. And the father, sells the house and he moves back to England and just kind of deserts uh, Llewellyn Jr. here in Rockford and he's left to die in the sanitarium all alone. Sixty years pass and they're remodeling on, on the, uh, they've fallen into a state of disre- disrepair basically and they're cleaning up the garden and they take the old maple tree that was like the center point of this garden they take it out and when they pull it up they find this old oriental rug that had been wrapped around a body and they open it up and here's this woman's body in this black taffeta at a gown they had no arms or legs they do find her her arms somewhere, but they don't find her legs ever. It's obvious that she had been stabbed. And so then now they have to change their, their version of the story and, and obviously Mara didn't go anywhere and um, couldn't really do anything to get the poor girl justice because Llewellyn Jr. had died in an insane asylum and nobody had seen Senior in years. So they do what they can for her and they ship her back home to her family. Um, after oh. that happens, the house uh, is divided up into apartment houses and um, they uh, um, one lady has a wonderful bar in her apartment and she is off on a Sunday and she comes home and all of the bottles are broken in her bar and this beautiful mirror that she had above her bar was smashed to pieces and nobody had broken in. The doors were broken in. Nothing else had been touched, just this bar. Um, she kind of feels a little creeped out so she has a brother spend the night with her and he is awakened in the middle of the night by a strange sound coming from out in the hallway so he gets up out of bed and he goes to the doorway and he opens the door and there in the darkness on the ground he sees something crawling toward and he doesn't know what it is and he doesn't scream and I'm not sure why he does this but he turns around and he runs back in the bed and he covers up his head with the blanket. <laughs> there you <laughs> That's go. That's <laughs> they would have run out the door. So as he gets in bed then he can hear this thing enter his room and he, he can hear it pulling itself across the wooden floor with its fingernails. He can hear the fingernails on the wood. He can hear, hear it getting closer and closer to his bed and then he feels its hands on the bed as it pulls itself up on the bed feels it touching his body as it comes up toward him and then he hears this noise and he actually and this I will give him credit for he pulls the blanket down to see where it is and he can hear this woman's voice in his ear start to whisper and then he finally screams and when he screams the sister comes running in the bedroom flips on the light and there is nothing in the room at all wow that's a that's it's always a, a chilling story. That's actually story. a pretty cool story. <laughs> yeah, it uh, it really it creeps me out every time I hear it. It sounds like what one of those ghost adventurers would do. You know, they <laughs> see a ghost and they run screaming. <laughs> <laughs> and run out the door. Supposedly now, they, after they look back and they had found out that, you know, this was probably the ghost of Mara and she's still out 
trying to get justice for this untimely, her untimely death. And, and it's it's even worse because it's true. It's based on something that actually happened. Actually happened. That's correct. And um, you have to wonder if she didn't have something to do with Llewellyn Jr. going insane because the story is that it was probably the father who killed her and the son came in on it and mm-hmm. saw and had to help him clean up the mess and bury her in the, the garden and stuff. So I wonder if that just drove him a little. He just wasn't strong enough mentally to so handle that, all that. That would do it. Come in well, like, now, that would... you come in like, Dad, what did you do? <laughs> Well, if, if that wasn't bad enough, now there's a park over the uh, where the house used to be, right? So kids Correct. are playing where they discovered this body. That's right. And they still see this woman dressed in this black taffeta gown walking, especially in March, because that was the year she was at that time of the year she was supposedly killed. And um, people in the neighborhood um, say that they can still see her walking around and the kids tell their parents, I saw that lady. They never found her so. legs, though. Is that what you said? That's right. They never found her legs. So a better story would be people saw legs walking. <laughs> <laughs> just legs. <laughs> I'll have to revise that. Thank you. There you go. I'm, I'm just trying to put a little more zip into your tour for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, usually it's October, so, you know, it's windy, it's you know, chilly, everybody's huddled around listening to the story, so it doesn't really need much zip at that point. They just want to get back on the bus so they don't see anything. Your tours sound yeah. like they're a good time. Do you generally just look at these old buildings, or are there ones you actually get to go inside, too? The with the private residences, people are usually a little, you know, hinky about us going in. But I get us into as many places as I possibly can. That's one thing I try to do. And if it isn't, you know, I'll get us into a commercial place. They usually are more, a little bit more, you know, that's kind of cool. You know, bring your, your group. And it's hard, too, because I have such a big group. Um, you know, it's not like most people have room for 60 people yeah, in their house. Some people so. get just a little bit touchy when you bring 60 people into their home. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what, what we need is a haunted Rockford pub crawl. Yo, I'm working that? on that. I am working on that. Mike will do um, that. Anything with well, the word me pub up. in it. <laughs> sign you up for that, Mike? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mike was doing a haunted pub crawl last night, I heard. Right. <laughs> Our listeners um, don't I was actually thinking that. of doing something like that and maybe, you know, stationing a couple of people because there's some really nice places downtown. And now that I'm going to start doing walking tours down there, I thought I could probably make some friends with, you know, well, maybe I'll take you with me. You they probably already know you. So um, <laughs> some of the bars downtown and, um, you know, have like little stops where we go in and have a drink and maybe somebody could tell, you know, like you could tell a story there or uh, one of our other authors, local authors, could tell a story. We could have that oh, going on too. So. That actually sounds good, pretty cool. You. How about you yourself, Kathy? Have you had any, you know, a paranormal experiences? Funny you should ask that. Yes, I have. And I, I try, I mean, I tell this story and um, it still gives me the goosebumps. We, uh, I am not from Rockford originally. I um, met a man, we got married and um, he was from Rockford and we bought a house in his neighborhood, just a few blocks down from his dad, because his dad was getting on. And we had four small children. Uh, my baby was a year old when we moved into the house. So I had four kids under the age of five. And uh, we bought this old farmhouse, and um, I loved it. I was fixing it up, and uh, um, weird things would happen, just little things. But, you know, you got four kids, I'm busy, I'm not really paying attention, so maybe, you know, the baby moved something, you know, because we try to find things, and you put something down, and, of course, it would not be there when you went back to it. So we just blamed that on the kids a lot. Um, there was times that we had weird feelings in the house, you know, like uh, you walk into a room and it's you get the heebie-jeebies and it's like, and I hated I hated shutting the lights off at night and going up the stairs because I always felt like there was somebody watching. And But, you know, I read ghost stories, so I figured it was just my imagination working overtime. But we had an incident happen when um, 
we had probably been in the house about a year, and uh, my daughters shared a bedroom in the front part of the house. There were four bedrooms on the second floor of the house, and so my, my two little girls shared the, the front bedroom. And I had given the youngest one a bottle. She was about a year old, like I said, and her name was Erin. She spelled it A-R-Y-N, uh, or I spell it that way for her. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I gave her a, well, it's the way we spelled it. She, anyway, she's I had the given artist her a bottle. of the family, right? Pardon? She's the artist of the family, right? She is. She's my photographer. Yeah, that's right. Um, this probably scarred her for life and made her creative. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I had given her a bottle to put her down to bed, and um, it was probably half an hour later. She started screaming, so I go running up the stairs, and I'm like, what's going on? And her bottle was gone. And, I mean... When I say gone, it was nowhere in the room. I checked in the she was in a crib at the time, so I checked the crib. I I checked the other daughter's bed, thinking maybe she threw it at her. You know who knows. So I, I checked everything, and the bottle was not to be found. So I went downstairs and made her another bottle, and I gave it to her, and I just didn't think anything of it. And you know the years progressed, and and the kids never liked that room. I would come upstairs, you know, we'd put them to bed, and then we'd go downstairs, and we'd come upstairs, and they would be like in the hallway. You know, my kids are really great about going to bed when it was time to go to bed. We didn't have any of that, I need a glass of water. Thing. They, they usually, you know, went to bed. I know what you're probably thinking. She probably beat them every day. So they <laughs> <laughs> But um, so they would, they would like pull their blankets and sleep right past the threshold. It was really weird. So uh, they didn't like that room. Lo and behold, five years later, we're tearing down that room because it was an old farmhouse and it needed to be rewired. And, and um, when I say it was old, it was built at the, like the turn of the century. So it had the gas nipples sticking out of the wall. And um, so we decided we needed to We'd start with that bedroom um, and do that one first. So we start tearing down. It had the old plaster and the lath boards, and we took all that down. And I'm tearing the wall down. We're, you know, we're hammering it, and we're pulling down the, the lath boards and stuff. And behind the plaster, behind the lath board, like in the mix of this, this blown-in insulation, it was like newspapery stuff um, that had settled at the bottom, was Erin's bottle. Huh. Still had her name to, on the side. <laughs> try to explain the that one. Was, pardon? I said try to explain that one away. Yeah, I'm stood there, and I'm holding this thing, and I'm like, what in the world? And I, I cannot to this day figure out how it would have got behind the wall. That's incredible. But that was a pretty good indication that we had something going on in there. Yeah. And, so something you couldn't ignore. And I had talked to the neighbors. I mean, we had made uh, friends with the neighbors. We had an elderly lady across the street that had been in the neighborhood since the 20s. And um, her sister had actually gotten married in the, the yard of that house. It had a beautiful rose garden. And um, the gentleman on the other side of the house had told me that, that somebody had died in the house. In fact, he told me a lot of people had died in the house because they'd get sick with cancer and they'd come home and they would die in the house. And there was like three people prior to my living there that had passed away. And um, he told me that somebody had actually been killed in my house. After that event, I started talking to him, you know, did anything go on in my house? He said that uh, it happened in 1958. And he thought it happened in the summertime. So I looked, I went down to the newspaper and I was just going to start researching my house. So I found out who lived in my house from the time it was built. And in the 50s, a family named Hull had owned it. Um, So I couldn't find anything in the summer. So I thought, well, I'll just start at the beginning of the year. So I'm looking through, and this is this is months of research, you know, because I've got all these kids. I can't just hang out at the library. So it took a while, but I came across um, January 17th. I flip over the little thing, and there on the front page, 
of the newspaper is my house. And that gave me goosebumps, big time. Murder, suicide. A gentleman, had his wife had left him and was staying there with her sister. And he broke in on a Saturday morning and shot her in the living room. She ran up the stairs and he finished her off in that front bedroom wow. where the girls went. Wow. Well, that's creepy. Maybe that's a good uh, lesson here for people buying homes. Do your research before you purchase your new home. Prior to the purchase. Right. Do they, have they said anything to you? Do they remember anything happening in the house? They don't really remember. We really tried to hide a lot from them. And this was a real traumatic time for our family, too. I was the same age as the woman that was killed when um, my husband, her husband was an alcoholic and so was mine. And um, this was our, our bad time. This was a, uh, I'm not sure if us being in that same situation amplified it or their situation amplified our situation. I'm not sure how that all works. It could be I that. Know. I've actually heard that before. The negative energies in a home like that will actually cause marital problems. Yeah. So it was, it was a real, so they know that part because we, I had them in therapy and um, stuff. And uh, so it, I got almost obsessed with what had happened. He killed himself there too. So they both died in that house. And she left a six-year-old and a four-year-old, which would have been right around the same age as my children. I actually got so obsessed with it. I called, I, I read the article and I called the funeral home and I talked to the gentleman who worked on her and he said it shook him up because she was so young. She was 28 and uh, had these children and her mom took the kids and they sent his body to Arizona, I think. And uh, so I went to visit her grave and everything. It just really, really struck home with me. And I, I don't know if it made my situation all that more real. I couldn't say, well, you know, it won't end badly because I had the perfect example right in front of me. So right. um, it really made me uh, have to wake up and, and take stock of that situation. And uh, so he became a recovering alcoholic after that. So it was it was a good thing. I mean, ours ended differently, obviously. So Yeah. yeah you're well, alive still. <laughs> yeah. So do you have any upcoming events? I do. Um, we have an event kind of a, a different Valentine's Day kind of thing. We have a dinner and ghost stories instead of dinner and a movie. You can come hear ghost stories. It'll be at the Camp Grant Room Museum. Have you been there with me, Michael? I have not, actually. That's one place I've heard a lot about, but I've never been up there. You have to come out. And and that is uh, Valentine's weekend on the February 11th, and it's going to be 7 p.m. And you, she's going to make us a full dinner. She, you can choose between a full pork loin dinner with all the dressing and trimming and stuff, or a vegetable lasagna and uh that goes from seven until nine and yeah she's a great cook great dessert and it's a great interesting place um that camp grant was during world war one and world war two has a lot of history during world war one it was an induction site and uh they got trained there and during september of 1918 of course the spanish influenza hit the whole world the epidemic hit the world um 20, people died in rockford and 2,000 men died within a 24-day period um, during that, yes. And it was such a traumatic event. The colonel, who was the colonel, he had only been colonel a month when this hit. He couldn't do anything to stop this. And he, I mean, they would get feeling not so great in the morning, and they would be dead by night. It was such a horrible uh, disease. Wow. He and committing suicide. The colonel committed suicide there. Wow, that's so, incredible. Um, yeah, and um, during World War II, it was used again as an induction site, but it was also used for German POWs. So in, a in lot Rockford. of it. Just, and German in Rockford. Wow, I didn't know that. Yes, 
and um, they would be they would use them to work in the fields, and they would pay them a wage, and they they actually lived better than I mean, obviously our than our um, soldiers over in Germany, but the German um, the German soldiers here were treated better than their families back in Germany. Oh, that's so pretty it was, cool. It was Learn pretty something new every day. Right. <laughs> so um, Yolanda uh, and her husband Stanley have done a wonderful job. It it just they were just going to open a restaurant, and then they started having people bring them just memorabilia from Camp Grant because it is one of the last buildings of Camp Grant. Um, so they've turned it into the command post restaurant and museum, and it's a fascinating place. All the memorabilia there has been donated by family members of the gentlemen or the gentlemen themselves that serve there, the women that serve there as nurses, the people who work there. So it's a fascinating place. She actually has a great story she tells about a guy who, because Atwood Park, which is connected not too far from there, was part of where they did the live rounds and shelling and stuff. She actually had a, a gentleman bring her like a live bomb. <laughs> he picked it up in the park and he brought it into the command post and said, do you oh, wow. want this? And she said, no, you need to take that to the police department. <laughs> yeah, really. A live bomb. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want that in here. So that's crazy. Well, yeah, it was. Cra- I, I can't. But when she told me that story, I was like, "You're seriously? You had that happen?" And she's like, "Yep, I had that happen." Did the guy realize it was actually still alive? I don't think so, because I mean, it, there's signs all over that park when you take a, you know, when you hike in the park, you can go hiking, and when you go there, it says, "Do not pick up anything. Just let us know what you see." Apparently, he didn't follow the signs, and he picked it up and brought it in. Well, I've never heard of that before. I've never been to a park where, you know, it says, please do not pick up live bombs. <laughs> I know. I, when I uh, went there, it was uh, it was really snowy, but I was, like, you know, trotting along, and I, I look up, and I'm like, okay, what what's that sign about? And uh, my boyfriend at the t- uh, um, was with me, and he's just like... Um, yeah, this is where they did the, you know, they would practice with the, the ammunition and, and I was like, nice, very what, nice. What better place to put a park, my gosh, <laughs> naturally. Yeah. I know. It's like, you know, you know, this is where they find bodies, so let's put that park there. And Rockford's really great for that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm surprised I didn't put a preschool there. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, get, right. Getting us back to the paranormal. <laughs> Are you Sorry, are you still doing the tours associated with the library, or now have you gone independent? I'm kind of doing both. Um, we'll still do the the tours through the library in the fall, uh, so I'll still do that during the you know Halloween time. But uh, I want I wanted to go year round, and uh, so I, I went to independent in October, and um, it just allowed me to offer a better variety for the people because I have people that give me suggestions all the time like oh wouldn't it be neat to do this so I have a psychic Mark Dorset that I work with he's been wonderful and he gives his uh, impressions he also does what they call live gallery readings and we have um, one of those scheduled for March um, 24th and that's basically where you'll come in and he he can um, connect with the people your own personal loved ones who've passed on, who might have a message for you, even if it's just to say hi. And he can tell you, um, you know, if they're if they come through, he can't guarantee that they'll come through, but sometimes they're brave and they step up and they have a message for you and he can pass that along for you. So we'll be doing that at the Veterans Memorial Hall in on March twenty fourth in the evening. 
That's pretty cool. Do you have a website, or what would be the information if somebody wants to go on one of your tours? I do have a website. It's um, www.hauntedrockford.com. I just made it as easy as I could. And you can email me at kathy at hauntedrockford.com, and it's K-A-T-H-I. Well, that was actually great. Do you have any other questions, Mike? Uh, No, I think that's it for me. Uh, Kathy, thank you very much for coming on with us again, and uh, I love hearing your stories, and I look forward to talking with you soon. Okay, well, I hope you join us on some of our events, and you too, John. If you uh, ever get a chance to come to Rockford or would just like to come, let me know, and we'll have you come as a special guest. I think I'll take you up on that someday because it does sound like a good time. And like I say, I've, I've lived in you, Illinois you my whole life. You with and every I, guest we I've have. never been there because I actually do want to do all these things. I, I can't always do them, but I actually do. Well, you're going to have to get that Winnebago and just drive from one to the other. Yeah, but I heard they use gas, too. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Kathy. Well, it was great talking to you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. And um, you guys have a great day, and I'll, I'll talk to you soon, Mike. You too. You too. Thank you. Thanks for joining us tonight on Thresholds Radio. We hope you enjoyed our nightmare special. Take care, tune in next week, and prepare to be abducted.